All right, everyone, welcome to something a little bit different on uh, this episode of the Post Moto Show on the Inside Dirt Network. That's right. Um, we got a different podcast crew, uh, Mickey and the boys from Post Moto. Uh, they actually were good enough to have me on to do a bit of an interview and tell my story on their platform uh, about a week and a half, two weeks ago. And it was really cool. Really enjoyed it. Um, so I gave a massive shout out to those guys. And I said to Mickey, hey, we might as well, um, you know, shoot the audio file and I'll run this episode on Inside Dirt for my listeners to listen to. So I'm sure a lot of you went over there and, and listened to the Postmoto show and uh, make sure you subscribe to those guys because they're putting out some really cool content. And it's great to see some new independent media outlets popping up in the sport, especially with where things are at right now. It's getting crazy out there. So we need all the coverage and uh, all the media people we can get to keep this thing rolling and um without getting too sidetracked um it's cool to work with another media outlet it was cool to work together tell my story um and yeah you'll hear not me asking questions today but be me telling my story um for those of you that didn't catch it on the post moto network you can catch it here pretty much gives you the rundown of from where i started in the uk all the way to the present day goes a little bit you know i think it's a couple hours but there's a lot of good insight in here i think as far as if you're interested in me uh without sounding too vain about it where i came from and, and the steps it took to do the different business ventures and some personal life stuff as well that's in there um you know riding motocross riding uh, freestyle motocross moving countries and uh getting to where we are today so uh, i appreciate the listens guys um if you want to share it out um, via the socials, make sure you tag Postmoto in it because this isn't an Inside Dirt episode. This is their pod, but we're running it on our network and um, hoping to do a little bit more work with these guys in the future. So without further ado, here's the episode with um, Postmoto and myself and enjoy. As promised, Joe Stevens is the Mad MX coach, Inside Dirt podcast, ID Media Group founder, motocross and supercross commentator. Pretty much the busiest man in uh, Australian moto. Uh, Joe, how are you on, man? Yeah, good, mate. Hey, thanks for having me on. Appreciate it. Uh, no dramas, man. Uh, obviously, the current times have sort of put a spanner in your mix, haven't they? Yeah, look, I'd like to say it was a struggle to squeeze you in, but that would be a lie right now. Um, <laughs> plenty of downtime at the moment. Yeah, for sure. I don't really want to get into the negativity that's going around, but for anyone listening, um, Joe did a podcast with Kevin Williams and Yareve and that was sort of really eye-opening to what goes on behind the scenes. I think many of us are sitting at home and they're like, oh, they just prematurely cancelled it or whatever the case is. But there's a lot more that actually goes into the whole infrastructure of side of things. And um, Joe yeah, did a really there good... There is. Yeah. There is. And that, that was the reason behind that. I mean, like you said, let's not get crazy and let everyone knows what's going on in the world at the moment. But... Um, yeah, like obviously I work pretty close with, with Kevin and, and MXN and, and um, you know, it was, it was actually myself that put out the, the press release and everything that we were cancelling the opening rounds and, and I get to monitor the feedback that we get and, and I wouldn't say it was negative by any means, that's what we said in that podcast, but a lot of questioning as to why, you know. Um, so I figured it would just be good to, to get, you know, between Kevin and Yareev, two of the guys that are pretty much one of the you know, the promoter of MXM, probably one of the, the bigger team owners in motocross, supercross, or Uribe, it just kind of made sense to have them talk on their end, you know? Well, I'll be honest with you, man. I think oh, a couple of episodes ago when that press release dropped, I think I was even, oh, maybe I guess the best word for it was critical. I thought it was maybe premature, but obviously you guys had the inside word from the Australian government and MA and all that sort of stuff, you know? And as we've seen it go on, it's only gotten worse and worse for 
everyone. It's not just motocross that's affected. It has, and that 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 day in particular, I, I still remember. It. I was I was driving to the office, and I actually had a meeting in in Melbourne in the city that day. Um, geez, it would have been about two and a half, three weeks ago, maybe now. Um, I was, I was hooking up with the guys from Australian Events Group. They own Sexpo and, and the Australian Two Expos, and, and we were going to start doing a bit of stuff with those guys. Um, with my media company, and, and I spoke to to my friend that runs it, and he just said, "Look." there's probably going to be some big stuff happening and and we're probably going to have to shut down all our events. And it kind of caught me off guard a little bit because um, it, it wasn't really to that point in the mainstream media yet. And then the next phone call I had was with, with Kevin from MXN. And then at that point, he was like, hey, this is what's happening. And I was like, wow, okay, this is... I kind of had a little bit of a head start on it where it was going to go. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I mean, fast forward probably three weeks, I, I didn't think it was going to get to this point. I, I still was a bit skeptical as we all were but i think now you can see where it's at right well i mean at least in that podcast like kevin and you and your eva are all saying we're still going racing it's just a matter of time it's not you know what I mean? it's not just going to end we're all going to go racing at some point in life we'll return to normal and i think that's the most positive point that we can put across to as media groups as riders as everyone in the community it's like the world's not ending we're just putting everything on pause until it's safe to do so yeah, I agree. I think that the, the, probably the hardest part with Australia right now compared to at least like MHGP, they had a few rounds, like Supercrosses had over half. And at that point, you could call the championship quits at the worst and, and something would come of it. But with us right now, you had one, well, two, well, three rounds of ARC. They cancelled the fourth round with the weather. Yeah. Um, no MXN, hardly any state level racing. So for us, I think the timing is probably a lot worse as far as the, the business of, of, of motocross and supercross in the country because, I mean, there's going to be serious repercussions here with AFL and NRL getting cut. Then stadiums are now going to be in use later in the year. Like, And that's nothing official. That's just me putting two and two together. You know what yeah. I mean? Like, There's going to be a lot of hard yards for everyone to make this late season MXN and, and then supercross work financially and logistically. Um yeah, man, it's, it's not good. It's not good, but at the same time, everyone's passionate, and, and like we said in that other pod, like it's going to happen. It's just a case of what that looks like, and, and everyone's way too invested for it not to happen. So, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of with the mindset now. I'm just trying to enjoy the downtime because, you know, hang out at home, spend some time with the family because, like, yeah, when it's on next, when we go racing, we're going to be going for the whole year. Yeah, <laughs> so, exactly. And, I mean, realistically, but, if coronavirus wasn't around... I mean, realistically, December to January, depending on what sort of media you're covering, that's the only real di- downtime that you have for your family and, you know, business and all that sort of stuff does, does go to the, you know, the side while all the racing's happening. So it's, you know, it's trying to find a positive out of this is that a lot of people can actually benefit from it, whether it be a lot of stuff that they've put aside or, you know, riders looking at mental, you know, mental state and all that sort of stuff. It, it can be looked at as a positive, even though how bad everything is. Well, it has to be. There's only there's only one way to do it, and that's to adapt. And I think a lot of, you know, man, I've got my opinions. Like, I'm not an expert on anything by any means, but you see the current economic landscape of, you know, you've got stores like Maya shutting their doors, laying off 10,000 workers. Like, yeah. that that business model it was already in jeopardy of not being sustainable. And you look at that now, like, that whole landscape's going to have to change. And whether it's department stores, whether it's, you know, athletes that... I know there's, 
you know, there's probably a lot of a lot of nervous riders right now out there that are we going to get paid our full salary for the year because we haven't been racing? Like, what 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 does each individual contract look like? There, there's a lot of crazy clauses in some of these guys' contracts that they wouldn't even really be aware of that that they can, you know, sometimes fall victim to this stuff. So it's um, yeah, it's not it's not uh, an easy time, but at the same time. I think you got to use these opportunities to re- reset. I think the world is going to reset a little bit from this whole deal. Well, I know it will. It has to, you know. Yeah, for sure. Well, uh, yeah. Um, but probably, probably my two cents on Corona. We'll move on from that. <laughs> yeah, no, I didn't. I didn't really want to get into it, but it's obviously the talking point of it, nah. you know. But um, it's hard not to talk about it. Yeah, actually, of really course, is. man. And I mean, it, it affects me and you directly. It affects the whole industry. So, I think if we can put a positive light on it, that's a that's a good side of the things. Um, but yeah, obviously, dude, I want to hear your story because, you know, it's not very often that you see a guy that's got his hand in absolutely everything moto related. So let's talk about it. Where, where did you? Where did this all start from? Yeah, man. No, like I said, when you reached out the other day, I was pumped because um, I'm normally the guy doing your end of the job here. <laughs> um, and yeah, my my story is super unique, as in. That's what I said to you. Like, we can go as deep and as long as we want because, yeah, it's been an interesting ride. But, um, you know, where it all got started for me, obviously, I, I grew up in the UK. Um, I moved to Australia when, when I was 13 with my parents. Um, they didn't last long over here. We moved back within within a year back to the UK and then they, they got divorced and stuff. But um, that's kind of my connection to Oz and then that's how I ended up back here like later on, you know. Yeah. Um, and then from that, yeah, it was, you know, I kind of, I raced a lot as, as a kid. Like as a mini bike rider, we were really fully into it. Um, and yeah, like not to talk it up, but I was one of the, you know, one of the better sort of 85, 65, 85 riders like in, in the country and stuff. And even when I raced over here as a kid, like we had some, some pretty good results. So like I'd, I'd always ridden it at a higher level. That kind of fell off a little bit when I got a bit older. Um just you know the family stuff that was going on and, and money and whatnot like I just I guess going all in wasn't um, wasn't really an option yeah you know? yeah um, so but that that's one of the first good things that happened to me I guess is as much as we all would have loved to have made it as top pros like that just wasn't on the cards for me and, and that's fine but uh, you know then then you know I got a good education because of that so that was like how I think the, the TV commentary and, and the media coverage and, and the, the writing and stuff, the brand work that I do, you know, I, I'm not sure what you guys call it. And I was, I can't remember now, but in the UK we do um, A-levels, they call it. So yeah. years 12 and 13 are like optional. So I went all the way through. Um, and then, yeah, that's sort of when, yeah, I finished up school and everything. And then at that point I was like, all right, look, I want to race. Like I'd never really had a proper crack at racing uh, since I was a lot younger. So yeah. Um, that was, geez, I finished school when I was six, I'm 32 now, I'm trying to do the math, but yeah. <laughs> um, so I went in 06, to the end of 06, I went to the States and I trained in California for a few months, yeah. um, came back, did some British championships, raced on the British four show championship, the, it was called the Maxis British championship back then, I'm not sure what it, I think it might be the same now, that was like the the UK official like national series, but um, didn't last very long. Like I, again, money, family, like it just wasn't, you know, I, I was never going to be, I don't know what the word is like a guy and have, 
I wasn't going to be the guy. It was way too late for that, you know. Yeah. Um, like a guy that I'd always, I grew up a few, uh, like a region over from Tommy Sell. So Tommy, okay. you know, yeah. MXGP, AMA Supercross, like really established world rider. Um, Tommy and I grew up together. So to put it in the perspective, I think he's a couple of years, maybe a year younger than me, but like Tommy, um, you know, 80s, 65s, 85s, like we battle. He beat me more often, but I, I, I did like beat Tommy quite a lot. But like, his journey in comparison to mine, I just tell people this is crazy. Like he went, when we went senior, you know, I'd already fallen off quite a lot. And like, I remember the summer before we went pro, like I'd beaten him straight up to it at three motos at a local race in England. Um, the next time I seen him, like he, he signed for this, the Wilson Kawasaki team, which was uh, the factory 250 Cowie team in Europe. He was teammates with Gareth Swanepoel then, right? Yeah. And then, like, the next time I seen him was probably, like, six months later, and uh, we were at a British under-21s race, which was, like, our version of under-19s. Mm -hmm. um, and, like, he won the race, lapped me, just, like, straight up crazy progression, you know? Um, and that was kind of one of the moments where I was like, wow, like, right team, right people, and that's the progression. And I'd already seen that I'd lost that gap, and it just kept going, you know? So, um it's hard not to get into crazy detail with the memories, but yeah, long story short, like I, I did a half a season of racing at that pro level, but I just knew it was, it was no fun, man. Honestly, like I was getting training, riding, you know, doing all that stuff and dad struggling to pay for it. I'm doing what I was do to get by. It just wasn't any fun. So, um, yeah. Seems to, be the, seems to be the story with a lot of, you know, junior guys coming up the scene is if that opportunity is not there, and that, you know, the opportunity to progress or have the right team or the right support, you know, a lot of guys do end up falling off the bandwagon, you know, whether they hit 18, 19 and they've discovered chicks and partying and all that sort of stuff. It's like, it's not like an un, sort of untold story, you know what I mean? That's the thing. And it's, and that's, that's why I preach so much now to the guys that I work with. It's, it's about being around the right people, you know, and it's not a, um, not a woe is me story by any means like my old man was pretty gnarly and and like we we just didn't really get the opportunities to get around the right people in the sport you know um and whether that is you know taking the risk to buy that ride on that team for the first year which a lot of guys never get spoken about but you know it, it happens a lot especially yeah. in europe you know um or just getting access to like man i never had a coach until i was freaking I, I went to america myself when I was in my you know, early 20s, years later, well, I'll talk about that later on, but yeah. I never even got coached or anything, you know, we just kind of rode. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, so, you know, long story short, like, yeah, racing finished up, I was like, this just wasn't working. We, we hadn't done it the right way. You know, my dad never raced first generations in the sport. Like, we, we did everything wrong that you could probably think of doing as far as trying to make it, quote unquote. And, and yeah, so I was like, all right, well, this is no fun. And, um, a weird this is where like the fingers in pies things comes in like you said about me having involvement in different things so even when I was racing in the UK um, I didn't really fit into that clean cut racer UK rider model it wasn't really my scene but I rode a lot of BMX and I had a lot of friends that um, there was a few friends but we used to ride freestyle moto okay. so um, I kind of do that on the off weekends we had a ramp set up I never really thought anything of it but I've 
be racing, having a miserable time. And then I'd go down to our ramps on the weekends. We weren't doing anything. And my mates would be talking about the shows they just did. They were getting paid. <laughs> they were just having fun, you know. Around that time would have been the, the pinnacle of freestyle, wouldn't it? You know what I mean? Yeah, it was It was just around that mid-2000. So, like, you know, 06. Like, I think I rode my first freestyle show in 2006, right? Yeah. Um, I think I made a couple hundred pounds and did a freaking hill clicker and sea grab or whatever. Like, you know, <laughs> One hand off. <laughs> like, yeah, like yeah. I was never, never a standout at it. But um, so I, I kind of was in that scene. I was kind of in the racing scene. And, and yeah, when racing finished, I was, I was working for my dad, building houses, laboring and, and just riding freestyle. And um, then, yeah, this is where the journey gets a bit kind of weird. But uh, then my mom moved back to Oz. And I was kind of doing my own thing in England, working for dad, but kind of living by myself. And it was like, yeah, you know, I think I was 19 at the time. So you get a little bit just caught up in whatever's going on. And, the fun stuff. And, yeah. yeah, the fun stuff. And yeah. then also just getting comfortable. Like I was working on job sites and not that there's anything wrong with that, but yeah, dad was just like, one day he's kind of like, what, what are you, what are you doing? You know? And I was like, well, I don't know. I'm just kind of working and partying and riding and having fun. Um, and he's like, no, nah, no, nah, this ain't for you, you know, like, we've got to figure something out. So he's like, you in this freestyle thing? I was like, well, I guess, it's kind of fun. Uh, and he's like, well, you know, um, you, you know, make something happen with it, go to the States, figure something out, you're not staying here and doing this. So I was like, well, okay, that, that, that's going to be what it'll be. So ended up in England in December of 07. Yeah, after I pit race and done that whole freestyle thing for a little bit, and, and then I went and lived in the States and got hooked up. I had a buddy that rode shows in England that rode some shows in the States and, and he hooked me up with the FMX East crew over there. Um, and I literally just reached out to the guy that ran like this freestyle company in Atlanta and Georgia and um, got a few emails back and forth. He's like, yeah, come stay. So that was that. I, I flew out there at the end of 07 and didn't even know anybody when I got there. <laughs> just knew that I was going out there to ride and I had a little bit of money saved up and um, that helped me out with some money for some flights and that. And, and that was that man. I ended up in the states doing that for a while. Yeah, right. See, so just I just want to trace back to the UK moto scene. Was it similar to Australia? Like, if you're not in that, I shouldn't say this, but if you're not in that top percentile of riders, you're sort of not really getting looked at, or is it sort of a little bit different? Um, look, it's changed a lot. You know, I left in '07, so what's that? freaking 13 14 years you know but i couldn't speak on what it's like now but i can speak about what it's like when i was there and i think it's the same as what it is all over the world you get that small percentage of kids that show potential early they're kind of they're ran by the manufacturers all the way through with support and they get that shot at being pro you know and but I will say this, like it's way gnarlier in Europe than it is over here with what it costs to go racing. So yeah. the the model in MXGP, British moto, you buy your ride. That's how it works. Yeah, You're the yeah. privateer or if you want on a team, you are buying your ride. And I, I won't name names, but there's plenty of UK guys that have had British Championship success, MXGP success. They, they bought their ride at least for their first year. What's it, you know? what's it cost to buy a ride? I mean, Back in my day, yeah. it was like 30,000, 40,000 pounds. So it's almost 60,000 um, Australian. Probably more than that yeah. back then. <laughs> yeah. Talking probably close to 100 back then. Wow. Um, that was when it was like nearly $3 to the pound though, you know. Okay, I mean? yeah, yeah. I'm thinking this, <laughs> um, So that's what it used to look like. And the, that that was the model. You bought mates at the team, you got your ride, 
you show potential, you paid less or you didn't pay after that, you know. And for a few guys it worked out, but I can I can talk so many guys that I came up with that I know their parents remortgaged, they bought the ride, they bought the motorhome, they did all this crazy stuff, their kids quit school when they were, you know, fourteen. Yeah. And by the time they were eighteen they had no money left and they ride and it was all done. They'd done a few, you know, European EMX two fifty races, they'd done some British MXGP races, they'd raced the British championships and and it was done, you know. Um, and it's unfortunate because I think the education back then probably wasn't there. It was just, it still isn't. I think a lot of people think you're just going to get on a team for a year or two. I see over here and you're going to be made. And it's like, as soon as that ride's gone, you got no money coming in. And these kids, they don't really know how to put their own program together. Um, mm. to be honest, so, to be honest too, from the, you know, oh, I think every rider I've spoken to has been really good, but there is people within my community that have, you know, done that homeschool thing and they really lack social skills, uh, Joe, to be brutally honest with you. Like you try and talk to them and they, you know, I, that, I think that schooling is so important, not just on an educational level, but socially and everything. You know, you get these guys that are stuck in, you know, boot camps or whatever you want to call them, riding camps, and they're stuck in that same circle. And once that all goes away, they don't really know how to survive, I guess. Yeah, I agree 100%. I don't agree with the homeschool thing. I, I don't feel like there's any reason whatsoever you can't go to school and and be a competitive rider. Um, it comes down to family culture and it comes down to time management and not making excuses. Um, and I think, yeah, it's, it's one of those things where I attribute a lot of my success in, in life in general to my education. You know, I, my parents did get me into a really good school and... It was weird. Like I'd say I had two educations. Like I had that whole moto traveling, you know, dealing with with different aspects of life with sport. And then I had that uh, strict school um, education too, you know. So I think that kind of lends itself to being able to, to do different things. So you essentially you did get the best of both worlds though because the moto life is an amazing life and you do learn so much, but you can't take away that schooling and social and all that sort of stuff either. So you did get the best of both worlds essentially yeah i'd agree i'd definitely say that was um you know you know combine that with my old man he was he was a hustler you know he would always yeah. find ways to make money and you grow up seeing that and you get uh you get the the real world education with schooling and then you see what the big world's all about traveling to race bikes and and um you know obviously living in different countries as a kid it does open your eyes up to, to different opportunities so um yeah, best of both worlds. Like I wouldn't, I say this too. Like my upbringing was far from normal. It was very, very out of the box. But yeah. um, at the same time, it it shapes who you are. It is what it is. You know, yeah, what I mean? for sure, for sure. So we we got off track. So you were in the states and you were doing freestyle. Yeah, yeah. So um, talk about tangents are fine. We'll, we'll probably have a few of them, right? Um, <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, that was. That was 07, 08, I was in the States. And initially, I only went out there for a few months just to have a ride and kind of just hang out. And again, like I said, I was 19, dude. I didn't really have any idea what I was going to do. Um, and then got hooked up with the right people over there. And, and this is a bit of a theme. I kind of got lucky where I put myself out there and I'd meet the right people at the right time and kind of things would come of it, right? So 
I was living with a guy that owned FMX East and I'm not sure how old you are, but I don't know if you remember in the mid 2000s, late 2000s, there was this thing in the States called the IFMA. It was like a ramp to ramp tour. Yeah. yeah um, no, I, I was, I'm, I'm 28. So I grew up in like that. Yeah. Okay. You so know, that pinnacle I, of freestyle where it almost overtook yeah, racing. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. When it was massive. Yeah. So I kind of caught the very tail end of that in the States and I ended up getting hooked up with Basically, the guy I was staying with, January, I've been there like a month. All the guys come through to the south um, to start riding because it's snowing up north on the east coast. And I meet like a bunch of guys that have been riding the IFMA tour for years. And um, yeah, long story short, like I go along to the first couple of shows and, and I've got my bike in the van and the promoter's like, oh, well, do you want to, you know, do you want to ride practice? Let me see what you got. And, and look, at this point, like I don't want people to get it twisted. Like I was never doing backflips and all this stuff that was... You were top no, of the sport back you then. Like, you weren't a Jeremy Stenberg or anything like that. Nah, man, nah, man. I could do like heart attacks and double grabs and freaking, you know, Indian airs. And I was, I was basic, you know. Yeah. But the one thing I had on my side was that from racing all those years, like you could put me in front of a ramp in any arena and I had bike skill, you know. Yeah, so yeah. for the promoters, that's what they wanted. They wanted guys, because a lot of the ramp kids, even back then, like, dude, they would just you go to shows and in practice, they would brain themselves. Yeah. And so, yeah, like I rode a couple of practice sessions at these shows, just hanging out with the boys I was living with. And, and the, the promoter was like, all right, I've got you booked in for, you know, the next few months, you got shows all over the East coast. And I was like, what in the world is going on? You know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I'm living the dream, but it, it was, and like I said, I was 19. So I was just like, wow, this is, but I didn't, dude, I didn't even own a van out there at that point. Like, I had a, a bike, and that was it. You know? yeah. um, so I was like, all right, hey, I can't be doing shows right now. I'm like, i got to go get my life sorted out. So I flew back to England real quick and kind of sold my van and my bike and whatever I had back there. And then I bounced straight back to the States and just hopped on to, that was sort of early 08. And, um, and you know, I was doing the, the visa thing, getting all that sorted and going back and forth and, I pretty much stayed there from from the end of 07 to the to Easter of 09 was my time over there. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I probably rode. Yeah, I rode a good amount of the IFMA shows. I rode a lot of the Monster Jam, the freestyle demos at the Monster Jam shows. Um, and then, like in the summer, we'd just go ride at uh, the bike rallies and you know, geez, you'd end up all over shows the and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, yeah, man. Like right. wherever, if, if they were paying, we were jumping. You know, it was kind <laughs> yeah. of the. You know, some shows you get paid, some shows you'd ride for tips. You'd just go out there to like Sturgis Bike Week and all that stuff and, and do that deal. And like, but that's what I'm saying, I guess, like crazy experience when you look back on it, just being able to travel, be so young and um, just live that, you know. Was, the dream, essentially. Yeah, it was the dream, but it also wasn't the dream. I think that came after probably by the end of my stay, like um, you kind of realize all of a sudden, like this is, and this is no disrespect to anyone still doing that, but I wasn't making, you know, I'd make a thousand bucks a show, fifteen hundred bucks a show, whatever. And yeah. like you're putting your life on the line, dude. You're riding concrete metal ramps, and I'm not, I'm not loose by any means. I've never been a, a natural at anything. Like I'm that guy that has to work really hard and ride a lot, you know. So, um, yeah, once we started having a had a few injuries you're in america there's no one there that you know you're just living with a bunch of greaseball freestyle dudes sleeping on the couch or sleeping on the floor or whatever it was and and then you start having crashes and you go to the hospital and you're like oh shit this is real like there's no one here to help me you know what i mean yeah 
Were any of those um, crashes due to just sketchy setups or sketchy promoters or anything um, like that? No, nah, nah, for the most part, actually, it was me just doing dumb stuff. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, not dumb. Like, I don't know, man. Like, I, you know, I just miss a trick, have a crash. You know, eventually in freestyle, you're going to have those things where you, yeah, you know, you, it's miss gonna a, happen. you miss a grab or you slip a foot or whatever it is. Um, and I was lucky. Like, I kind of I had a couple of concussions. I broke hand broke a wrist you know chip my hip like nothing major just like stuff that would put you on the couch for a few weeks and and yeah it was like the dream was doing the shows and that but then all of a sudden it's once the fun wears off and it's like because the thing was it's a style if you didn't need to flip either you i could make reasonable money not flipping but then it got to the point where i knew where the sport was going like yeah it was progressing so gnarly at that time that that era you were riding like it was i mean even now it's stupid but it was that time that you were doing those like i think that would have been around the time Bastana did the double flip and you've got you know just stupidity going on oh it was and i mean look you got you know bill was doing 360s back then and cliffhanger flips and 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 here's me thinking i'm all rock and roll i'm doing seat grab indies and double grabs and thinking i'm you know the the man um but i knew i knew i was like i was in it honestly i was in it for the lifestyle i loved it i loved traveling i loved the partying and the shows and just I don't know no, if your right, chick's no. gonna. I don't know if your chick's gonna listen to this, but did you just have all these like sort of backcountry babes just hanging off you? <laughs> look, man, that was a long time ago. But um, he doesn't kiss and tell, boys. Let's just say that yeah, being on tour with a foreign accent didn't hurt. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> but we'll move on from that. Um, <laughs> but yeah, like that's what I'm saying. It was it was the dream. It was the American dream. But then at the same time, I realized pretty quick, I was like, you know, I'm making not a lot of money. I've got no health insurance over there. I'm dodging medical bills. I'm freaking living in a van. I'm a carny at the end of the day. You yeah, know what I mean? Yeah. And I'm like, and, and I've been gone, man. Like I, I left the UK in 07. I hadn't been home for the most part. For I didn't have a home. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. And it grew pretty, pretty thin pretty quick. So, you know, the last three, the, the IFMA tour I did in 09 finished it like, you know, April time, and I was like, dude, what am I going to do? Like, I needed to get an athlete visa. I couldn't keep doing the visa thing I was doing, and that was going to cost thousands. And and I was like, you know what? Screw this. Like, I need to I need to get my head straight. I need to go have some normality, you know? So um, I literally, I, I packed what I had, which wasn't much, in a box. I sent it from, from Georgia to Melbourne, <laughs> to my mum's place. Yeah. Um, sold everything in the States and I jumped on a plane and I still had a permanent residency visa from when I was a kid over here. Oh, okay. Yep. So I was like, well, you know what? Like that's going to expire and I'll never get to use it. So I was like, I'm just going to go live in Oz for a year, extend my visa. I was still thinking I was going to go back to the States at that point. Um, so I landed in Oz in 09. Yeah. About Easter 09. And, uh, and that was that. Yeah. Landed here and I've lived here ever since. Jesus Christ! Yeah, for story, man. Boy, that's that's insane. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. When we were yeah. texting, I'm like, you can go as deep as you want with this because not many people really know, like, and they wouldn't, you know, because when I when I lived in when I moved to Oz, I literally I didn't know anybody. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, I had a few connections when I was a kid, but I hadn't seen everyone for so long. Like, it wasn't like people were like, oh, Joe's back. It was, um. The only sort of connections I had, like I knew Bill Coe from when we were kids because Bill Coe came over to the UK and stayed with me for a bit and did some racing. Yeah. Um, but this is when Bill Coe was height of his 
X Games career. You know what I mean? Yeah, he was like, a two fifty R guy, just sending it. Yeah, just killing it. He was yeah. never home. It wasn't like I was going to go to his place in in Baxter. But I guess this is one of the other things about being in the right places. Like, luckily, my mum moved just outside of Frankston, so okay. that's where I moved to. That's for you guys listening in the state. Like that sort of you, you hear the boys talk about the South Side, which is like Sings, Bill Cove, Mosig you know, Adam Bailey, like all those guys that came from that area, I just happened to luckily move like right there. So you, you know were what I mean? essentially in the hub of Victoria. So the Gold Coast of Queensland. I was in, yeah. Yeah. I was in the hub of, of Victoria Moto. All the teams are based here. All the tracks are based here. All the, the pro guys are based here. And at first I really didn't know because that was sort of, yeah, I don't say I didn't know anybody. So it was yeah. sort of a learning curve. But, um, yeah, that that's when my, my Australia journey started. Um, did you have any intention of racing or did you know about much about the Australian I, national scene at the time when you come back or the freestyle uh, well, scene or anything like that? At this point, I hadn't raced for like, what, four years, you know yeah. what I mean? So I was like, freestyle was the go. So yeah. I was still chasing that. So I was like, all right, so I, I got... I got settled here. I got hooked up with, I went to Frankston Yamaha, just the dealership that used to be in town. I bought a 52 stroke and um, kind of got hooked up with the local freestyle crew. Um, started going ride with those guys a little bit, but that's when I realized, I was like, wow, okay, Australia's different. And that's when I realized right away because I'd go out and ride with them boys and, you know, they're like, oh, what have you been doing? And, you know, oh, I've been riding shows in the States and this and that. And like, oh, you know, fuck, this guy must be really good. And then I go out to the local spot and these guys are just sending it, you know, and they're tradies. They work all week. <laughs> and I'm like, what the fuck is wrong with these guys? Like, you, you don't get paid to ride and you're sending flips and you're doing And I'm like, okay, it's, it's different over here, you know. <laughs> do, you think that, um, do you think that mentality was because... As Australians, we're watching, you know, X Games. We're watching due to a IFMA and all that, and you know, X Fighters and all that stuff. And we're seeing the elite of the elite send it and do all this crazy stuff. So because we sort of feel so distant away from everybody, it's like that. That mentality is that we have to send it. We have to be the best. Yeah, I think also it's just Australian mentality. Yeah. Where you guys, you say I say you guys. I, I don't mean to say like, I'm an Aussie now. You know what I mean? Yeah, so yeah. The Aussie culture. Like if I go anywhere, people think I'm Australian. That's how I sound. So. Yeah. The Aussie culture is just loose, man. Guys like to send it. They like to have fun and, and they chase that adrenaline, especially the blokes, you know, it's just loose. So at first it was pretty off-putting because I was a 21-year-old kid and I was like, okay, this this is crazy, you know. Yeah. And um, yeah, I kind of, I really struggled with that because I was like, these guys, they're not doing it for any other reason than to do it. And that's like the organic and the pure way to do it. But I'd come from a different world where we did it as a job, you know. So it was more calculated, Joe? Um, we were working class freestyle guys, but, you know, you didn't do anything for any other reason than, okay, you're doing, you're riding a show, you're getting paid, you know? Yeah. Um, but I think that, again, lends itself to later on when you say different fingers and different pies. Like, when I was that young, I was living in the States by myself, dealing with promoters, getting paid, doing that whole deal, dealing with visas. Like, no one was helping me. I was doing it by myself, you know? It's what I, what I had to do to get by. Um, sort of that hustle mentality, you know? Well, you got to, man. And I think if you're going to make it, you know, this is the thing. Like, I, And this is what we'll get into this later, no doubt. But there's so many kids, especially in Australia. Like, there's so much opportunity here. And in the industry, out of the industry, like, this is I've got one of the few countries yeah. left in the world where you can make good money doing whatever the hell you want to do. And 
they just want to sit at home in mum and dad's house and they don't want to chase it, you know, and that's, there was an opportunity or there is an opportunity if you don't want to chase it for yourself. Um, but anyway, we'll get into that yeah, later. I've got but a whole yeah. segment on that. Yeah. Yeah. But anyway, we'll, we'll get, I'll, I got to wrap this up because I'll ramble all freaking day. But hey, um, right. yeah, the, yeah, the freestyle thing, I actually wrote a couple of freestyle shows locally in Victoria that year I got here and yeah, dude, like riding crazy setups, getting paid freaking peanuts and and this was in 09 or whatever it was and i was just like you know what like this is this is fucking stupid (laughs) what am i doing you know um and yeah so then at that point honestly like i I got a job when i moved here not long after i got here i was working at a a rope factory um a rope driving a freaking forklift right um it was basically the guy that ran the freestyle spot up the road from where i'd moved to his family had a business he got me a job there and yeah and and literally, dude, like, uh, you know, not to get all deep and meaningful or whatever, but like, I, the, the, the moto thing was done in my mind. I'm like, this is, this is done. You know, like, I'm, I've not made it. I'm a failure. I'm driving a forklift in a factory, working a dead end job. Like, what, you know, a year ago, I'm riding freestyle shows and doing all this stuff in the space. And now I'm a fucking loser, you know? Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah for sure. Like, if we're being honest about it, like, I didn't take it very well. And I, I, yeah, I struggled. Um, I don't think, people are aware enough of like what that lifestyle does to young people like the freedom and who you think you are like i see it with young racers now like they have a ride they lose their ride all of a sudden they're not who their identity was they get with the wrong crowd or they just go to pieces you know like in in it's a slippery slope for sure that post athlete career thing you see it with athletes that were top pros and they retire in their 30s and they struggle with life let alone a kid that's in his early 20s you know um, and he spent his whole life chasing that and 20 years of all, you know, 18 years of effort and money and everything like that for it to still go away. It's sort of like they lost their identity, which I think it's ties exactly, back in with it, the school thing. You know what I mean? It does. It does. And I think like, I struggle with it and I had a small taste of it. And you see guys that have a big taste of it. I can see why they really struggle with post-athlete life. Um because if they're not forced to find their identity in the business world or the real world away from being the guy at the track or, or whatever it is at the shows, when that's over, like it's it's rough when, you know, when you go to work and you're a nobody and, and your boss is like, do this and do that. And you're like, whoa, what is going on? <laughs> you know? Who's this guy telling me what to do? Yeah. Yeah, it's an ego check, and and I'm not afraid to admit it. Like I, I was a young punk, ego, you know, I was the man, whatever, and all of a sudden I wasn't. And yeah, so long story short, like I just went into a bit of a lockdown with, um, I worked and I didn't really do anything else. Um, kind of just figured out who I was as a person, I guess you could say. Um, were you ever content so, though, Joe? Were you ever like, this is what I am now? I've just spent last. No. No, no, you were never, never content. Yeah, okay. I'm just no, trying to figure out your mental state at that at that point in time. Very unhappy, um, depressed, and it was. I've always found identity in what I do. You know. Yeah, for sure. I think that comes back to not fitting in in where I grew up in the UK and uh, different things. You know, like I've always found identity in being myself and and having that expression and not having that outlet was really rough. Um, uh, but it kind of brought me back down to earth, I guess you could say. So then it was, okay, what do I do now sort of thing. I was working and and long story short, um, I was just like, screw it. I'm going to go buy a bike and start riding tracks again. I need to do something. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah for sure. <laughs> um, that release so is still to, needed. 
yeah, like I need to do something. So I went to the local dealership and I just financed the RMZ 450. I think it would have been a 2010, yeah, late 2010 RMZ 450. I was put on finance and I was like, sweet, well, at least I can go ride now. You know what I mean? It's <laughs> um, the best bike at the time too. Oh man, that thing was sick. That's yeah. still hands down probably my favorite bike I've ever ridden. I mean, um, the Makita was it? That was Reedy then, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah, yeah. yeah I think Matt Moss yeah, and all those boys were doing it. Yeah, yeah. I remember. Yeah, I yeah. frothed them so bike, hard then. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, they were the bike, man. Um, but you know, I went to the show. I just bought like the Fox gear that Dungey would have had at the time or whatever. I just went full like weekend warrior about it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and I, and yeah, it was good. And then I literally started going to the track. Uh, Frankston was a local track and there was a lot of clubs around here that would have club ride days on the weekends and once I'd lost like 20 kilos of party fat and <laughs> and started riding again I was like you know um, like enjoying it and then I started meeting people at the track and they were like you know you should you should do some racing or whatever and I was like well, I didn't really even want to I was just there to ride you know yeah. Um but yeah, made some friends, started riding like Wednesdays after work, Saturdays, Sundays before you know it, like I'm riding flat out. I'm like, fuck, this is actually pretty fun. Um, maybe I should start doing some local racing. And, and dude, I hadn't raced in so long. You know, I was very slow at this point. Yeah. <laughs> um, and started doing like the Gippsland region races in 2011 and, and that and did a couple state rounds. And, and um, but I guess like I knew even then I was like, there's no money for me in racing. I knew I was never going to make money being a racer. But what I saw was so much opportunity in the scene over here, like so much money in the scene over here with sponsorship and, and guys getting bikes and race plans and free gear and, and like all the stuff that was available yet. Like, and you know, not to piss anybody off by being honest, but like the coaching system here was backwards. You know, like you had to hire a club track, you had to sell your riders, the schools, sell your 20 spots. And it was the old pro guys that were doing the coaching and no one was doing anything else. And like when I was in the UK racing, I'd coached heaps just to make money to get by, you know. And and then when I trained in California, I'd seen the coaching over there. And I was like, man, there is such opportunity here, you know. Um, and same with the fitness thing. So this is where the fitness thing comes in. So like my dad was a pro boxer, so he had a gym, uh, just like a a full ghetto, you know, um, shack gym where they would do their thing. Yeah. Cockney London gym. Right. Um, like something out of like stocking two smoking barrels. Uh, that's a movie. If anyone doesn't know what that is. That's a good movie. Yeah. yeah. good Good movie. People think that's exaggerated. Like some of it is, but a lot of it isn't. That was kind of the world I grew up in, away from school a little bit. But anyway, um. oh, I, dude, I lived in the UK for six months, and oh, uh, there you go. Where'd yeah, you live? Uh, I lived in London, so yeah, yeah I, so I, I, could, I couldn't afford to live there. And to be brutally honest with you, man, I didn't see sunlight for five weeks, and I'm like, I'm out of here. I'm going to Croatia. So that's how it worked out for me. But yeah, <laughs> a, a lot of the things you see on the movies are uh, an exact representation of how the uk live you know yeah like it's a gnarly place to grow up it really is it's very violent and um you have to be very streetwise to if you mix uh-huh. in them circles and i Dude, didn't really yeah. you know not that i wanted to but that's just where i grew up so it's part of it but um yeah fast forward you know that was when i don't know like Alden baker had just kind of become a thing and that whole fitness in moto thing was just starting to become important you know yeah so i was like all right well I already know how to run a gym. Dad used to run one. And I know how to coach because I've done it on and off for years. And I'm like, 
there is a massive opportunity here that no one wants to take advantage of. So I'm like, all right, at the end of 2011, I'm like, okay, I'm going to, um, that did my PT qualification that year, 2011, um, whilst I was working and started getting more known locally, just doing local races and whatnot. And then I, I went to Millsaps training facility. Some of the boys I was riding with locally were going over there. So I was like, all right, I'm going to go to Millsaps. And I didn't tell them I was, obviously, I was just going there as a nameless racer. I didn't tell them I was going there to yeah. like learn, you yeah. know. Um, but I learned the fitness program. I learned the coaching program. I trained there for, for six weeks. Um, just a side and, note on the MTF thing. Uh, yeah. I've got mates in the States and they, they honestly reckon that the MTF guys, like the way they're coaching and trained, you've seen Barsha, you've seen all these other riders come out of MTF. Is it true that they teach aggressiveness and they just want you to be on the rails everywhere you go or is that sort of selected rider styles and personalities? They they don't... Okay, here's what I'll say. I think Colleen Millsaps probably hands down one of the best coaches in the world for for riding technique and development. Um, they I wouldn't say they teach racing smarts, you know what okay. I mean, as in a racer IQ. Yeah. Um, they teach you how to win amateur races how to get whole shots. They'll, they'll transform your technique functionally into the best it can be. And, you know, their program's efficient, but it's tailored for the amateur market, you know. Okay. Yeah. Um, I think riders need to take it upon themselves to then realize that, you know, because, like, I went there for six weeks, transformed my entire riding style. I built a whole business model off of when I went there. I was there for six weeks, yeah. you know. There's kids living in trailers there. They've lived there since they were on freaking 65. They're in 250s now. They've never known anything else. Again, it comes down to family culture, education, and seeing that there's more to life than what you're doing right now. You know what I mean? Yeah, for um, sure. Yeah, the, it's not crazy aggressive. Like, they'll they'll teach you. You get out what you put in. You know what I mean? Yeah, I think that's what yeah. I'd summarize it as. Like, if, if you ask the questions, she will, and, and the other training staff there will answer them, and, and you'll you'll gain knowledge. But if, if, if you just hammer down and don't ask questions, and that's what you'll do. You'll do laps, and you'll just be another one of the students, you know. Yeah, statistic, yeah, for sure. Um, so, yeah. Um, so you copied MTF yeah. or you essentially yeah. you know, <laughs> borrowed it, I should I, say copied I, it. But I yeah. Based, yeah, I, yeah, I'd say the first years of my coaching career, I, I heavily based it off of the MTF program, let's yeah. put it that way. Um, but, yeah, so then I came back and I'm like, all right, well, you know, I knew racing, I was never going to make money, but racing, and this is the education thing I preach to everyone that no one ever seems to understand. Racing is a platform to make money from, but it's not the platform that you make money. You know what I mean? Yeah, so 100%. you can brand yourself from it. So I was like, all right, well, biggest series is the MX Nationals. Well, I guess I'm going to go do some MX Nationals. Um, and that was the start of 2012. So I did the first three rounds of, of MXN in 2012. Um, I'd like got a, a bike deal from a local Kawasaki shop. You know, I had pretty much some things covered financially, but I was still nowhere in a position to be doing what I was doing, you know. Um, did the first few rounds, and and as I was doing them, I'm like, i got to take advantage of this now because I can't um, I can't keep doing this, you know. So I started just doing as many schools as I could at the first part of 2012, and I just branded myself as Joe Stevens MX Nationals rider number 69. That was like my deal. I put that on all the flyers. At the same time, I was going to all the junior races, introducing myself to all the parents, like, hey, you know, I ride MX Nationals, I'm starting up coaching. And, and again, went to the, the junior races. There was no pro guys there. There was no local 
you know, riders that yeah. coach there. There's nothing. There was no support. And I'm like, well, you know what? Well, none of these guys want to take advantage of this. I'm going to do it, you know? Um, and within the first half of 2012, I did three or four nationals. I, I fuck me, I racked up like 30 grand in debt on credit cards and, and setting up my home gym. And I was just all in, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I know. <laughs> and bear in mind, at this point, I'm still living in my mum's house, too. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I'm like, what, 20, 23, 24 at this point, you know? Um, and I'm like, I'm like, all right, well, I got to make something happen because I'm not, you know, I, I'm not going to stay with mum your whole life. Yeah. Nah, I'm not going to stay with my whole life. Like, I never got a trade. I never really did any of that. So I'm like, moto was what I knew. And I'm like, all right, I need to make something of this. So, yeah, long story short, like, the coaching thing started to take off. And I stopped racing pretty much right then in the middle of 2012. And I'm like, I'm not, not you know, geez, it took me years to pay off that debt on, on different things like finance and I had to get just to the races, you know. Um, and, yeah, so I went from that to then I had my home gym set up and, I was coaching, doing schools, and, and then that was at that same time, like I said, where there wasn't Instagram, there wasn't anything like that, but there was Facebook, and there was Verb Moto and Racer X, and, and all you'd see on those websites was the Oldham program, and you'd see the guys training, and they had the Racer X virtual trainer, and that was blowing up in the sport, and I just piggybacked off of it, and kind of... Used it here. Yeah. yeah used the same yeah, sort of foundations it, here, yeah, for sure. And I, I think for a while, honestly, I was like the only fitness trainer in, in motocross in Australia for, for a, a good few years that was, I hate to say profile, but known, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Which is insane um, to think because there's in the, I, I, well, let me ask you this. You've traveled, you've been in the UK, so the UK is tough, gritty, you've got to make it happen. It's a little bit miserable. I think that comes into the culture with the weather. Um, the US, yes, yeah, so hardcore, yeah. <laughs> and the US, there's so many people trying to do the same thing. It's that that, that hustle mentality. I've got to make it. I've got to make it. And then you've brought all of that sort of mental conditioning that you've gone through over those years to here, and you're going, well, no one's doing this. So if it's not going to be someone else, it's going to be me. Yeah, it's just it's. I think it comes down to Australian culture a little bit, as in. Um, we're very easy it's going. Def- it's like it'll happen when it happens. It's, that's easy what, going, especially in Queensland. You got to they're definitely in Queensland. <laughs> it's super chilled out, but yeah. you got to look at the time back then, 2010, 2011. The world was social media was in its infancy still, right? So the world was not as connected as it is now. So being this far away from the world, if you hadn't seen the things I'd seen probably not aware of the programs or the opportunities that there are, you know, you just know your small part of the world, which it's not being condescending. It's just your it's the reality of it, it for sure. Well, us in Australia, we are the complete other side of the world to the Western world. You know what I mean? Really? Yeah. You look oh, at where we are. Sure. We're, in, yeah. we're in a small pocket in, in the Asian side of the Asia Pacific, whatever geography it is. I don't know for sure, <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's one of those deals where I think that was a massive advantage for me just being exposed to so many things. And, um, yeah, so long story short, just grinded away 2012, 2013, took the home gym, got a, a small factory, um, kept doing the schools, kept doing the gym, grew it from just moto guys to, you know, personal training groups and, and moms and dads and sisters and whatever else needed training that, that my network was. Um, and this was the Moto XFC Development MAD. I ended up rebranding it to MAD Sports Performance, which just stood for Moto XFC Development. But if I was going to train mainstream people, motocross wasn't really best in the name, you know? Yeah, it um, puts you in that certain genre, certain bubble. Yeah. Like, yeah. 
Yeah, it does, man. And like the start of 2014, I went and got a, a, a 300 square meter factory and, and I filled that. Uh, 2014, 2015, we had, um, you know, like a full on uh, membership uh, CrossFit box gym, whatever you want to call it. Like I had five trainers working for me, physiotherapist. Um, yeah, like I went really hard. <laughs> You were all in, literally. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah, all in, man. I was still doing coaching and and doing that side of it, and and the gym grew really quickly because um, I just went, you know, half the time I was living at the gym. I had a sofa bed. I'd just sleep in the office, do the morning sessions, take a shower, whatever. You know, I was just all in, right? It's just work, um, work, work, work. Yeah, yeah. Not not always a good thing, but we'll, no. we'll get to that. You know, um, and then if you go back a couple years, that's where my first. I guess segue comes in where I got far out. I'm actually going to start posting some of these on my social media. I just got Brett Trick to send them to me, but I I kind of paid Triggy to do a video series on my gym and my coaching program. Okay. And kind of, um, long story short, I kind of knew Kevin Williams' son, but somehow Jake started coming to the gym a little bit and then he introduced me to Kev and Kev kind of saw what I was doing. He saw the videos and he was like, well, hey, I'm starting up. Um, what became NRG TV, but initially it was my sport live in 2014. So he's like, are you interested in, you know, he's like, I like what you're doing. You're young. You're trying to get somewhere in the sport. Like, do you want to, do you want to kind of use the, the TV coverage to learn how to do that? And you can, you know, get, get paid to go to the races and be with the guys that you train and coach. Cause at that point, like I was training, geez, like Jack Simpson, Sam Martin, Taylor Potter, um, you know, like Adam Monyo would train here and there with me in the gym for Supercross, uh, Boyd Hawking. Like anyone in Victor was pro, like they trained with me. All you know, the yeah. Yeah, so I had a lot of guys that I looked after at the races. Like we had, um, you know, I'd get them sponsorship deals with Muscle Milk and Cytomax and all the brands that I had deals with. Um, so yeah, I was like, all right, sure, you know, I can commentate. Like I'd, I'd never done it, but I was like, well, how hard can it be? Like I'll figure it out, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Um and then that's when I started traveling the MXN circuit. So 2014 on, I've been doing that as well. Um, but then, yeah, so I was doing that and, and doing the gym thing. And, and I ran the gym all the way to the end of 2015. Uh, but it, it was weird. I don't know if it happened in Queensland, but it happened down here really quickly. Like I remember my first gym in 2013. I was one of the first guys I feel like had a factory gym. We just went and rented a building and kitted it out, you know? Yeah. Before that, it was all just health clubs. And then by... By the end of 2015, like I had, I was in the biggest industrial state in the southeast, just off of the East Link Freeway, which is sort of links to the city. You're in Melbourne in 45 minutes, like you know, pretty prime Ideal. real estate. Yeah, and there was literally, um, man, I'd say at least 20, 20 between CrossFit boxes and PT gyms and everything in between. Like there were factories everywhere, you know. Yeah, I, I mean, and I'm like. I don't remember the exact time frame, but I remember just one day, I'm still a tradie, but every trade estate that I would go into, man, all of a sudden there was, you know, Kung Fu boxing or whatever it was. It just it just blew up out of nowhere. Like, it would just become a well, thing. What happened was, and, and the reason people, people don't really think of it this way, but the government subsidized personal training accreditations. Um, uh, so okay. when you left school the late 2000s everyone was getting them heavily subsidized or for free like mine i think mine cost me I don't know, four grand or something but it should have been like a 10 grand qualification okay so yeah. a lot of kids that didn't really have a direction oh i'd be a pt it's kind of glamorous and you know yeah i get to 
work out and you know it was a young person's thing right like with hot chicks and all <laughs> yeah. yeah exactly you yeah. know and then you've got combine that with the fact that, that generation that they're not millennials but whatever the generation before yeah. that was um they're that first generation that probably didn't like to work for people i'm one of them you know oh, what i mean i'm one of them yeah yeah oh, I'm, i am that generation and Having yeah, a boss yeah. I'm 32. Like it is what it is. Yeah. Like we're we're that 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 first generation that probably wasn't that keen on working for someone our whole lives, right? So I guess it's like um, entrepreneurship or whatever people want to put on their Instagram profiles. But yeah, yeah, hundred yeah, percent. That wasn't a buzzword back then, you know, like it is now. But anyway, long story short, man, the competition. You know, I couldn't keep just doing moto, and I had trainers. You know, I had a female trainer that did the chick stuff. I had a physio that did. You know, I had a guy that played footy who did the footy teams. Like, I had a whole business model, but it still wasn't enough. Like, I'm paying out thousands of dollars a week in wages, and I'm doing all this. And I was just like, man, I was too young to understand. You know, at this point, I'm still only 25, 26, you know. And and me being kind of stubborn and I can do whatever I want to do, I didn't really have business coaching or people. I didn't really reach out to people, you know. That mentorship, and yeah. I remember it was the winter of 2015. It was like... Uh, wage bill came in one week with everyone and, and wages went out and I didn't have the money to pay. And I'm like, what the fuck is going on? You know, why don't I have cash flow? Um, bearing in mind, I just bought a brand new U on the business and done all that stuff where I'm, <laughs> I'm killing it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and I was like, okay, this business model is not sustainable. I'm working heaps of hours. So is all my crew. I'm paying heaps of money out. And, and I was like, where did it go from here? Like, what do I go? get a 24-7 gym and spend millions of dollars that I don't have, you know. Which um, 18,000 other people have already, you know, jumped on that start of that wave of the 24-7 gyms and everything like that, haven't they? Exactly, and that's saturated now too. I mean, it's still a great investment business model, but I certainly wasn't there at that point to do that. Um, and I was like, okay, do I want to be owner-operated? No, I'm kind of over it, you know, like there's got to be a better way to do this. And and it was funny because, you know, I'd always, you know, had a little bit of a pushback in the motocross scene because I was, you know, it's an old boys club, motocross. These kids grow up together. They've graced each other since they were kids. Yeah. And there's this guy coming in coaching that they've never heard of, that they didn't grow up with. The industry, although I got accepted, I definitely got a lot of heat for not being a top pro or who's this guy thinking he can coach. And then all of a sudden I'm training all these pro guys and, it was it was a bit of a bizarre time, but in that in that profile building, I got to sort of the end of 2015. I had a lot of opportunities pop up in motocross, where I'm like, "Well, dude, I can make the money I'm making now in moto and not have any expenses compared to what I do with the gym." You know? Yeah, for sure. So I just said, "All right, well, um, all right, I sold up the gym. I got out of that. I actually just shut it down and sold off the equipment in the end." Because who was going to buy a gym when there was twenty thousand other room in Victoria in a factory? You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, and I I didn't really do the right thing as far as having a business that was ready to sell. You know, I was still learning about tax and profit and loss and all that stuff. Accounting terms that don't make sense. Yeah, well, oh, I don't get to pay tax. All right, sweet. Yeah, I'll run a loss. Awesome. You know, and then and then all of a sudden it's like, oh, what does the business turn over? Oh, uh, not much on paper, you know? Yeah. Yeah, it doesn't look <laughs> um, good. Yeah, so then when you got something to sell, which, you know, to be fair, I did have a business model to sell, but I hadn't, you know, big You the figures to back it up, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So it was just a mess of that, and, and I was young, and, and I was like, all right, clean slate. The gym's 
the gym's not going to go any further unless I really go hard again. I'm like, let's just get out of it. So I got out of it. And then I got a gig. Um, sorry, go ahead. Did you have a so, question? Yeah. Were you a little bit deflated when you saw this thing sort of fail? Or were you like looking forward and going, you know what, this is going to be, you know, it was successful, but it's no longer sustainable. So I'm out. Was it, or were you a little nah, bit like, I was hanging cool on? this time. No, nah, I was cool this time. But the number one reason I was cool with it was because, um, I never, I mean, dude, I was 20. When I sold the gym, I was 26, 27, maybe. Yeah. Maybe I was 27, 28. I can't remember. Anyway, 2015, five years ago. Yeah, I've been 27. So, dude, I'd never really had a, a girlfriend. You know what I mean? Okay. Like, I was quite, yeah. you know, I was young and doing what young men do. You know what I mean? Big <laughs> Yeah, I was just, yeah. just doing what you do, right? Yeah, yeah, and, um, and, and I'd never really had that. And, and then, then I met my now fiance, who's the mother of my, my kids. Um, I met her in 2015, it's probably 2015, and I was like, I'd be at the gym at 9 o'clock at night, and I'm like, dude, I don't want to be here. I want to be at home, you know? Yeah. I want to be I want to be at home with, with, with her. And I was like, okay, that was another reason. I'm like, you know, this gym thing, you know, I want to be working all the hours under the sun that you work in the morning, you work at night, she worked during the day. Like, it didn't make sense. Um. And I'd always wanted a family. I'd always wanted to do that. I just was never in a position probably to do it, being so focused on, on just being me. You know what I mean? So That hustle mentality was still overriding the whole family mentality as well, is what you're trying yeah, to say. Yeah, like, 100%. Yeah. I yeah. was just like, every time I kind of, yeah, I was just like, nah, I'm not getting serious with anybody. And then and then when I met um, Tatum, I was like, nah, she's, she's the one sort of thing. So I knew right away that, all right, I got to kind of change my life. I'm going to make, make the family deal work. Um, and then, yeah, so yeah, getting out of the gym as far as that's concerned, like I had other opportunities too. So it wasn't like I'd seen it as a fail. Like I, yeah. I had a sponsorship with Fox because I was training Mick Sinclair, Cam Sinclair, Bill Coe. So like Fox was sponsoring the gym and then Peter Stevens motorcycles for you guys at the interstate, they ended up sponsoring the gym. So I had bikes from them and, and I was using that for the coaching program. So I pitched a junior race team and a coaching program to Peter Stevens, uh, at the end of 2015. And they went on with it. So I kind of went straight from running the gym to running a race team um, and doing the coaching thing full time. That was where it went to. So were you um, commentating at the same time that you were running this race team? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was Jesus doing that too. <laughs> um, so I did. Yeah, I'd done NRG every year except 2017. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so we did the junior race team in 16. I coached flat out, um, did schools all over the country. And I was going to Northern Territories and SA and, and Never really got much love in Queensland, but I think, you know, Queensland moto seems a little different. Um, 100% it's different. Yeah, it's still, know, it's still different. I think we're stuck now. Stuck yeah, in our ways a little really, bit. Yeah. yeah, they just don't really do the whole coach flying in thing, you know. Like you've no. got a lot of good coaches and riders up there, and it's very spread out geographically. So, yeah, yeah. You know, a lot of private tracks and everything. Um, but, yeah, so, yeah, uh, 16 did that deal, had the junior team. And then halfway through 16, I had the bright idea to start a pro team for the next year. So I pitched that to, to KDM and Peter Stevens and did that whole deal and, and went out and, and got a whole bunch of sponsors. And then in 17, we did the, um, it was the mad Peter Stevens KDM flooring sales, uh, MX Nationals and Supercross team. So I had the junior team and, and then we did this pro team and, and I went out and I got a business partner and we got a truck and did the whole nine yards. Can I just ask a question? Because, I mean, I think every person has either talked about opening a track or starting a team. But from a financial point of view, 
how don't, in the whole are, yeah how on the whole are you and then a how are you do you get paid from your sponsors so obviously the sponsors would give a certain financial amount to the team but then uh, uh, are you so paying like yourself if, out of that or is it hey man i'm just here for a laugh if yeah if you want to break it down it was there was so much hustling to make it work right so oh, it was dude, like yeah you know, it was ridiculous. Like it was Peter Stevens. You know, I guess I can talk openly about these deals. I won't say dollar amounts, no, but no, it was no. like, you know, um, I never, I never got paid to run the team, but I got a, a marketing contract from Peter Stevens to to run their marketing mm-hmm. from from my content that I did from the team. Okay. And then the race team, like I'll, I'll be, I'm happy to admit it. I think it needs to be talked about more openly. I had riders that bought rides. Okay. I had yep. very good deals where it was like, hey, you're, you know, um, you know, you're a top, one of the top privateers in MX1. I can give you everything you need for a fraction of the price that you're going to spend, but you know, you still pay the team, you know? Yeah. Um, Which I'm, again, it, I it, it does make sense. You know what I mean? Like you can have your views on it, whether regardless or not, but. If you don't have the money, but you're still giving a person an opportunity to pay for a ride, there's still an opportunity that may lead them onto a full salary paid ride. Yeah, it is. And, and I said to all my guys, like, this is a first year deal. You know, like my business partner, I was, I was, coaching, um, I was coaching his son. Um, so we kind of worked out that deal where, you know, we kind of helped each other out. He had a business he could run the truck through and do different things. And that's how, you know, again, just hustling, just making it work, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and, and yeah, like, did I, you know, I wasn't sitting here going, I get paid a hundred grand to run this team. Hell yeah. It was like, you know, here's the budget, here's all the money in, here's all the money out. And somewhere in the middle, I'm, I'm putting fuel in my car and I'm putting food on the table and I'm just I'm making still it work. Right. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Again, like I was still so naive to business and it took me to, I wouldn't say failed businesses, but to big, expensive, shiny, big learning experiences where now I'm like, okay. Yeah, yeah, no, for sure. Uh, you know, and now for, for the next business I'm doing, like we'll talk about that, but I'm definitely structuring it a lot differently. But um, yeah, it's, you know, so we did that whole deal in 17 and uh, yeah, like the business model is exactly that. you got to find ways to make it work. Like I didn't have manufacturing money. Like KDM gave us some parts budget, but no one was paying us. You know, I got some KDMs for free, not many at all. And that was from the dealership, not from, from the manufacturer, you know, um, and I learned pretty quick that it was just really hard to generate funds doing a team. And, and everyone I talked to, it told me don't do it, but I was just like, no, nah, I'm going to do it. You know, yeah, um, like that mentality of no, I'll, I'll make it work. I'll make it work. Yeah. I'll make it work. Like I'd seen, I'd seen these teams function in Europe. I knew that they were viable. What I didn't see was the massive business to blow behind the team actually ran in the real world to bankroll the team as a, as a hobby. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, but anyway, it did that deal and, and yeah, 17 was really rough like because I was going to be doing an IGTV and, and I did the first round and, you know, Kev was paying me, flying me to the races, doing the commentary thing and after the first round, I was like, there's no way I can run a team and do this. Like, I'm completely fried. Yeah, you're stretched. And, yeah, stretched was an understatement. <laughs> so I just said to Kev, like, you know, Kevin Williams, like, I'm sorry, mate, but I can't do this. I need to, um, I need to focus on the team. Like, I put a lot of effort into this. It needs my full attention. He was cool. Like we've always been cool. And, and then, but then I was fully on my own dime covering everything too. You know what I mean? Yeah, so yeah. that, that little budget I had put in place for travel and expenses, which doesn't sound like much, but when you fly to 10 rounds and do all this stuff, it soon adds up. Oh dude, I know. Um, Cause I sat down and worked out the budget for this year to make sure that 
post-moto was going to be at every MX national and then every Supercross nationals. And I had a rough figure in my head thinking, oh, you know, I've traveled before. I know what I can live off and I know what I can do here and I can hustle here and I can probably, you know, swindle something here. But by the time I figured it out, I'm like, fuck, this isn't, this isn't cheap. This isn't going to be easy. You know what I mean? Like, like nah, it's, nah, yeah. it's, it's ridiculous. It really, you know, just the cost of living, cost of travel, everything in between. So, and yeah, some of the things like, you don't right. add up for either, like you know, I mean, like the food or the you know the fuel or anything. There's all these little things that just make that bill go so much higher. And, and when, you know what? When, when you're hustling and you want to make something work, you don't even look at those things. No, you just no. go, "Well, yeah, I'll make it work. Like whatever, it'll work." You know, and and then yeah, like literally, it it got to. I remember, um, <laughs> I'll be straight up. Not a lot of people know this, but I'm happy to tell the story now. Like. Because everyone thinks it's this big glossy thing where the people in the industry that have opportunities, they just walk through it and they're making heaps of money. Like we booked a holiday to go to Thailand in the middle of 17 uh, for the end of 17, right? So when MX Nationals finished, yeah. um, I finished Coolum. <laughs> I literally, I got back from Coolum, was home for a couple of days. We went to Thailand got back from Thailand and I think I had literally 15 or 20 grand worth of race team invoices to pay. Yeah. And I had no money left. <laughs> like, where, I was, where, where the fuck am I going to come up with 15, 20 grand? Yeah. yeah. I was like, I'm, I'm done. Like the team number one, I'm like, well, the team's done. I can't, you know, I can't continue to do this, but all the deals we'd done were for motocross only. So okay. it wasn't really a concern. And long story short, the, the, the guy, Scott Brewster, who was my business, kind of partner in the whole team deal he is now the guy that runs sb motorsport suzuki the factory suzuki team yeah um so that truck was our truck back then that okay. team yeah you know he's just i pretty much said to him look like, i can't i can't keep going there's no way um where are you at and he was like well it's cool like josh was still is still racing yep. he's like i'll just keep going with the truck and you know we'll, we'll make it work so yeah, um, the end of 17, like, I pretty much just went, okay, I called everyone and was like, I'm going to need a couple months to pay some bills, just hold tight. Yeah, I will <laughs> and, pay you, but I don't know when. You know, because there's that many teams. I could have just folded the team, folded the trading name and walked away. You know what I mean? I could have yeah. just knocked everyone, but I was like, nah, this is this is my industry. I can't do that, you know? And it's such a small world, um, too. Burn one yeah, guy, it is. it's going to have burn. an after effect on someone else, yeah. Yeah, you can't burn people, yeah, I did uh, pretty much just knuckle down and I coached flat out at the end of 17. Like I just lived on the road coaching and, and, and just doing whatever I could to, to, you know, make money. So by the end of 17, probably two or three months after MXM finished, I paid up all my debt, was done. It was a clean slate. And then, you know, um, I was like, all right, well, what do I do now? I guess I got to make money because I got nothing. <laughs> and uh, how do I make money? Well, coaching was always successful. I'm like, let's just focus on doing the coaching business properly. You know, like I've never really, I always had some other stuff going on with a team or with this or with that. So yeah, then 18 started coaching like properly, I would say just focusing on a business model. And, um, and yeah, it was pretty successful, you know, um, just, you know, coaching four or five days a week, doing schools on the weekends, just kind of hustling. And we're lucky in Vic. There's a lot of good tracks, a lot of ride parks that, you know, you can coach at yeah. and go every weekend. They're open. Got a good talent pool of riders, good people, good race series. So, yeah, like, the again, jun- The junior scene down the right there is place. very strong, isn't it? It used to be. It's struggling yeah. a bit now. Okay. But I think that's just because the cost of living is getting really out of hand. Um, yeah. 
it is, man. It's ridiculous. Yeah. Um, so yeah, but, you know, I'm sure I'm rambling, but yeah, 18 coached all the way through. We had our first child, Grayson, in or June of 2018. Um, and yeah, kind of just that, that's been, that was the business model until probably. And I'd NRG was middle. happening at the same time though. You were still, you got back on NRG in 18? Yeah. Yep. Still doing NRG. Yeah. So I jumped back in 18. Kevin was good enough to have me back. So I was doing NRG, doing the coaching, like still had the online motocross coaching subscription website that I started years ago. I kind of reinvented that and was pushing that again. Um, and yeah, that was until I'd say the middle of last year, that was really all I did. I just coached, did gym started the family, you know, and we were, we were just, I wouldn't say we were killing it. We were just kind of getting by, you know what I mean? You were, you were comfortable. Yeah. We were making it work. Um, and then again, it was kind of like another one of those reality moments where I was like, well, you know, start of middle of last year, traveling a lot, flying a lot, got a kid at home. This probably isn't the most sustainable lifestyle. (laughs) Um, again, yeah. Again, you know, I'm like, you know, I, I, you know, because when do you coach kids? You coach kids when they finish school. You know what I mean. So I'm when not your home kids are to, coming home from kindy or whatever the situation may be, yeah, yeah, exactly, right. So you know, I've got, um, and you can't be, I, I've, you can't be a hypocrite. Like I'm putting crazy effort into these kids' families that I coach. You know, I've always been really involved. Um, and you know, you're there for their family, but then mm, I'm not putting my kid to bed at night because I'm, I'm out the track with them. You know. Yeah. Um, so I was like, okay, this is not sustainable. This is going to work as long as I want it to, but I'm never going to be able to build a business model off of this where I'm able to spend time with the family and have people working for me or have projects running. It's only going to work if I work, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and yeah, I was like, what next? And then speaking, you know, my missus was like, well, you've always been good with the marketing stuff and media stuff. And it's always been a part of, you know, the contracts you've had and, and at this point now social media's, you know, a year, two years ago, it's it's where it's at now, you know, it's massive. Yeah. It's it's everything. So especially in yeah, this yeah. Well. it's everything. Yeah. It's definitely a lot of, of you know, digital uh, I think digital is an important thing to put on that, not just social, but digital marketing is more mm-hmm. what I specialize in. But um yeah, it's that's definitely where the world had headed. So I was like, all right, well I guess I guess I'm doing that. That's where I'm going to go. So um, it, it, it happened pretty organically, but it happened pretty quickly at the same time. So this is ID Media that this is all accumulated? Or is this Inside Dirt this, or is it they, they this were co-hearing with This is ID Media. All right, well, <laughs> so initially it didn't even have a name. It was yeah. like, you know, geez, where did this, you know, I'd say middle of 2019, uh, it got to that point and, and I had a conversation with a few people I'm tight with that, you know, and I was like, this is what I'm thinking of doing. Um, and, you know, first of all, again, Kevin Williams, he's always been a massive supporter of everything I've, I've ever done. I do a lot of business with Kev. He's been, you know, I, I, I literally, I think without Kev, I'd struggle to be where I am today. That's just straight up. Like a lot yeah. of people have an opinion on Kev that, you know, oh, MXN should do more for the writers or this or that, or he's a bad guy. You hear it so much, but not a lot of people know the real Kev. Um, oh, for sure, he, man. I'll, like, I'd be brutally honest. I think I've had my, you know, reservations on him, and I've had my, obviously, my opinions from looking from the outside. And I mean, it's hard because, like, up until uh, your podcast that you did last week, like, there wasn't a whole lot on Kevin and how he actually explained it 
where the sport is and all that sort of stuff. You know, it's very easy to form an opinion without having the facts. Oh, it is. And, and look, you know, at the end of the day, he's the guy that's taking people's money to go racing. And yeah. a lot of people that are going racing, straight up, they don't have the money to do it. They shouldn't be doing it. You yeah, know? for sure. Yeah. We love it. That's why we do do it. And I'm not talking down anybody that's doing it and struggling. I've done it. It's been my whole life. So I get it, right? But when you're not getting the results, you're not getting sponsorship, you're not getting paid, you're just spending and you're in debt, or who are you going to blame? You're going to blame the guy that runs the series. You're going to blame anybody, but looking at yourself and going, maybe I'm not cut out to be a Dean Ferris, you know? Yeah, for sure. <laughs> and it comes back to them and that hustle mentality is a rider too. It's like, like the exact same situation that you were in. It's like, hey man, I'm maybe not going to make it, but I'm really good at this and I'm going to use mm. the motocross platform to accelerate my business. Yeah, exactly. It's like, and you know, being a top racer has a cool factor, has a networking factor. You don't need to be winning the MX Nationals to be a guy that's just there. You're already better than the majority of the country at what you do. You're the and top every, percentile. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, you are. You know, every dad, every mom, every sister, every mother, whatever, at the track of the kid that you're at, well, they run a business. They 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 do something to fund their racing, right? Yeah, so you're not going you're racing already, or no, they're not, man. They have successful businesses that fund their, their kids racing. And then you're already looked up to in that industry. And then, by the way, I also do this. Well, who are they going to trust you or someone that they've never met that just cold calls them and says, I do fitness, I do marketing, I do whatever, you know? Yeah. Um, that was always my thing is like, well, you're already respected in your industry. Why would you not capitalize off that and, and turn something into a real world product? Oh, 100%. Um, but yeah, long, getting back to the point, like at first I spoke to Kevin, he was like, well, you know, um, well, if you want to do that, like I was already writing for Inside Dirt, which at the time was an MX Nationals property that was their digital outlet. Um, so I got way more involved with the digital magazine when it was still running. Um, and I started doing press and PR and stuff for MXN. And that was like, you know, I did that. And then one of my good buddies actually runs a marketing agency. Um, so I went to see Luke at Modern Visual and I just said, Hey man, like this is what I'm thinking of doing. Like, what do you think? You know, what's the landscape like as far as you're concerned? He runs a big agency, big clients. And he goes, mate, to be honest, I've just had one of my guys leave that does content and accounts. Um, you want a job? <laughs> you know? right. So I was like, yes, yes, I do. What better way to learn the trade than in a, in an agency that's already successful, you know? So I worked there for, um, geez, I started there in July of 19 and I finished up at Christmas. Okay. Yeah. So I was doing my own deal, like with, with doing, uh, NRG inside dirt through Kevin and uh, MX nationals. And then I was, I was working for the agency doing that and then, um, started picking up, you know, different, different, uh, contracts with the marketing stuff like recover rate, um, you know, and and at the same time, the podcast is starting to gather momentum, and then we start doing the live shows at Supercross and get sponsorship, and and yeah, like before I knew it, it was again like it just sort of started taking off pretty organically, and um, Kev had said that inside that it wasn't really financially sustainable. I mean, you know yourself with the media gang, you're trying to get sponsorship money. It's not really viable. It's a hustle, <laughs> man. And you have to it's put, hard, you yeah. have to put yourself on the plate. Like, I mean, in my situation, essentially a nobody. Um, and I just put, just put the stuff out there. You know what I mean? I was just like, hey, this is what I can do for you. And if you give me the opportunity. And 
honestly, man, you would know too from running a business. You have to eat shit for that first twelve months, six months. You know what I mean? If you're, uh, you have minimum. to, yeah. yeah. And that's they're putting it lightly. Twelve months, you know, you have to just take the shit, and you have to keep hustling and hustling and hustling. And I think those aspects and like your story that you just told, everyone should be applying that to everyday life. It's not just a matter of you know I'm going to do this for three months and see what happens. It's it, it's it's not that easy. No, it's not. You got to be you got to be able to be uh, maneuverable, dynamic. I don't know what the word is. You just yeah. got to be able to keep pushing forward. And you look at my career in the sport. From anyone that's appreciated, if anyone has listened this far, <laughs> um, you know, you see like it isn't a straight line. But you know, long story short, like you know, inside dirt wasn't. Um, it was an add-on to the series to give extra exposure for for sponsorship, and it kind of the industry was tightening up, and and you know I was doing the podcast for that, and and, and it kind of got to the point where it's like, well, why don't why don't you just take over Inside Dirt? Like that can be your deal. Um, yeah. So that's that's what we did at the end of nineteen. I, I sort of Inside Dirt became my property, um, even though it's still heavily involved with with everything WEM and, and MX Nationals does, but it's an independent property now for me. Yeah. Um, and then ID Media Group, if you do the actual initials, I needed something that was in the mainstream world. Again, it didn't have dirt or motocross in it. So inside dirt just became ID Media Group because obviously I'm going to service more than just the motocross industry with the services that we offer. So, so um, what are the yeah. services that ID Media Group offer because I, I i mean i've been following it i look at your socials and i see that you're sort of doing like packages for riders for sponsorship and all that sort of stuff is it is it an agency or have i got that sort of mixed up or is it just an Look, everything it's at the moment it's myself i have i have great partners that i work with as far as like graphic designers and i have a few guys that sub in and out for me if i need different things done, you know, build websites, whatever, whatever. Yeah. But essentially, you know, agency, uh, eventually it probably will be at that point. <laughs> but right now um, I have, I took an office downstairs from the agency I was working at. So now I have office space there to run out of. And the services we offer for the most part, it's, it's digital marketing. So that encompasses everything from, you know, your digital branding, to email marketing, to website building, to, you know, content and social media. I don't shy away from it, but um, we, we do do it. But obviously everyone's doing that. Everyone's a yeah. social media content, guru. you know, guru. Influencer. They work a full-time job and on their part-time, they, they, they're a content guy or whatever. Yeah. Not to condescend, but there's a lot of guys that do it very well. But again, I'm not a photographer. I'm not a videographer, you know. My, my my bread and butter is my ability to market brands because I've had to market myself my whole life. Yeah, um, sure. So it's marketing, it's identity, it's it's creating marketing strategies and, and identity and, and just giving brands opportunities to stand out. So that's sort of what we do. Um, and then, yeah, obviously PR is a big thing with the moto industry. So I do a lot of press releases and, and, and uh, post-event, pre-event coverage for some teams and some brands in the industry. Um, and yeah, website builds, you know, there's a few riders that I, I do a little bit with that's just getting off the ground. It's a tough one because I know a lot of these guys really aren't making a lot of money, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. I know oh, we had a podcast with Joel and he, you know, he was wrapped with you and the stuff, the advice that you'd given him. And I don't know what other yeah, riders to an extent that you're working with, but yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's one of those deals with Joel like, and, and this is, 
again, I hate preaching, but it's like I did a podcast with Adam Bailey and, and Ryan Sanderson. I don't know if you heard it. Uh, uh, I listened to it, yeah. Yeah, we called it the business of Supercross and uh, business motocross, sorry. But those guys reached out to me and they were like, you know, we like what you're doing. We'd love to, to have you come up and, and talk about, you know, just having riders understand the business model. And I'm like, yeah, let's, let's do it. You know, I'm all about it. But out of that entire podcast, where you've got the, the you know the leading promoters in you know outside of Feld probably internationally in Supercross these yeah. guys are killing it right well, and Mel- you've got these Melbourne's guys a trophy for them themselves like to pull that off yeah. is ridiculous absolutely ridiculous and you've got these guys telling riders hey this is what to do team this is what to do this is how we this is what we can do to help this is what we expect from you Joel was the only rider that called me after that podcast and said hey like can I get some advice, you know? Um, and, and then that led into, you know, we, I created like a sponsorship proposal, partnership resume, whatever you want to call it. And that's pretty much all I actually charged Joel for. And the rest of it, I just said, look, like I'll just give you advice where I can. And I talked to sponsors for him here and there and just help him kind of, you know, he's trying to put his, um, you know, his private here to pro deal together and, um, have a real crack at it. So yeah, like there's Joel and, we spoke about it, man, and like my my view was from it is that we've seen it in the states, but no one here in Australia is really taking that and running with it. And the talent is here, the personalities are more than here, if not more than America. Just being Australians and how outspoken and funny and all the rest of it that we are, it's you know that that's a massive gap in the market that riders should be taking advantage of. They should, and Joel, you know, he's put himself together a pretty good program this year off of his own back, and. Um yeah, is he going to get rich off of it? No. Am I making commission on any deals he's done? No. I'm just helping him out, and he's trying to live the the, the dream he wants to do of being a professional racer. Yeah. Um, but the skills he's learning doing this, they're going to take him far in whatever he wants to do after racing too. But I agree. Like, you know, again, it comes. No one wants to stand out in the crowd. Like everyone, everyone wants to be on Instagram over here. They want to be that racer. That's like, I just want to thank my sponsors. Yeah. And, you know, trust the process and we'll get them next week and, and all the cliches you see that come out of the States from the guys that are actually making hundreds of thousands of dollars a year. But that, <laughs> the, but that economy supports that. The economy here within the sport, we can't sustain that. It's not sustainable in Australia. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's not sustainable. So you as an individual, you yeah. need to use, um, not yourself, obviously, I'm just talking no, about no, the no. race yeah. like, you as an individual, you need to understand that, you know, I can be profiled, I can create opportunity for myself by being a high-level racer, um, but all these guys are too cool with these coaching programs or they're too cool to do, you know, whatever it is. Not all of them, I'm generalizing. No, but, but yeah, it's a general consensus for sure. You know, it is like they all want to be Roxon, but they are not Roxon. They're not making Roxon money. They don't want to put themselves out there to try to support themselves um, in between. And the new generation... And the guy, I'm surprised who's got it. I'm, you know, not not talking down on him whatsoever. Mm. But the new generation is Dean Ferris. You look at what he's doing. Yeah, motocross masterclass and all that sort of stuff for sure. Yeah, yeah. And he is, you know, I've, I've been waiting for an Aussie guy to get it. Yeah, <laughs> someone finally got it. Um, and it's one of our most internationally decorated riders ever. So, yeah, if he can do it, why can't everybody else? No, no, for sure. Um, my question. And was, sorry, keep yeah, going. go ahead. There you go. Ahead. No, no, go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, so my question is too: is that okay? Me and you are in the media game. There's a couple of other outlets within the motocross. You know, specifically the motocross. 
are we doing enough for these riders? Because I know for a certain fact, you know, there's you reach out to someone and they're like, oh, yeah, I guess, or you know what I mean? It's like, hey, we're giving you a platform, but can the media themselves be doing a little bit more to help these guys out? Should we be looking at the States and sort of reverse engineering that and bringing that back here? Or what are your thoughts on yeah. that? Yeah, look, I think first of all, you've got to double down at what you're good at as a media Guy. company. Yeah. Um, and, you know, for yourself... Like hats off to you because you guys are doing the actual event coverage, website-based, you know, click here for this feature, this interview. You know, you're doing the pod as well, but you're taking that traditional route with with coverage and media, which it's super gnarly to try and make any money from that. You know yeah, what I mean? Dude, um, me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and again, I, I knew early on that to do that probably wasn't going to be viable, so I've never really gone down that route. but. Yeah. Um, yeah, can we as the media do more? I think there can always be more done, but I feel like it needs to be reciprocated. And the writers, for 95% of them, they don't reciprocate it. They don't want to put themselves out there. And, um, you know, when you get that message of, hey, can you come on the pod tonight? And it's like, oh, sorry, I've got to do this. Or just you don't even get a response, you know? Um, yeah, yeah. Or, you know, whatever it is, like, hey, we're doing this, you know, because I run socials for MX Nationals and, and I do that side of it. So it's like, hey, we're doing this challenge or hey, we're doing this. Can you share it? Nothing. No share. Nothing back, you know. Um, yeah. yeah. Okay. All right. Well, you know, fair enough. I guess you don't have to do these things. But again, they, they, they get so caught up in just being a racer. At least my two cents. Look, I'm not, I'm no, not this guru no. by any means. You I, know see what I, mean? I see but, it too, though. Because, I mean, I mean, from my point of view, I'm usually uh, mostly Australian and the US sort of stuff. And I'm watching um, Alex Martin's, you know, vlogs. I'm watching Alex Ray's vlogs. I'm watching, you know, all this sort of stuff that each of these guys put up there, funny Instagram videos and all that sort of stuff. And then I come back here and there's only that select few that are doing it. And it's like, guys, you are all funny. Like I've spoken to these writers. I'm like, dude, you have the gnarliest, funniest personality. You need to put yourself out there. But yeah, you but can't, you know you can't happens, force it right? down. Like, you, you talk to that guy that's got gnarly personality and then you go, all right, hey, man, I need a quick interview. Put a camera in front of his face and he goes, oh, yeah. he has no idea. Yeah, yeah because, it's, a, it's a shutdown thing. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I think Australian culture again, and it's not, you know, I'm an Aussie now. I don't ever want it to come across as I'm talking down or condescending because I'm not. Like, this is my home. This is where my kids, they're going to be Aussie. You know, yeah. it is what it is. This is where I live. This is where I'm going to do everything. But... Australian culture is um, don't stand out, don't be the loud one, don't be the tall poppy, you know, let your actions, you work hard, you know, you work hard, you let your actions speak louder than words. Um, So these kids, and look, most of these kids that are good at racing, they come from working class families, you know, they're not, they're not exposed to, most of them live on the farm or they live in rural Victoria, Queensland, whatever, whatever, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) They're not exposed to these situations for sure. No, they're not in Southern California where they're getting cameras shoved in their faces from when they're on 85s, you know. So in in retrospect, then you do say, hey, I need this from you. And the kid's like so scared to say the wrong thing because he doesn't know what to say. He doesn't say anything, yeah, you know. Yeah. Um, that, I feel, is the problem at the moment. And I don't really know how we fix it. Again, it comes down to the family culture, putting your kids in those situations where – they can learn those trades, whether it's, I don't know, sending your kids a drama class or something a few times just to get them used to public speaking or, 
whatever, but I, I feel like there's just this massive thing where people don't want to say anything in case they say the wrong thing. So they just don't do anything. Do we um, have programs here in Australia for like media training? I know they do that over in the field in AMA, but do we have that here or is that something that we haven't looked into yet? I think at certain times when the money was good, teams did hire people to media train their writers, but we're going back a long time at this yeah, point. You know, yeah. Pre-recession. <laughs> it hasn't been sure, around yeah. for a long time. Um, you know, media training definitely it has a place in the sport, but again, the teams ain't going to pay for it because they don't have the, the funding nowadays. Um, I guess a writer has to be willing to as well. It's a, yeah. yeah, a writer's got to be just willing to explore those things. But again, you just, I think some guys are like, oh, I'm not cut out that way or I'm not a public speaker or, you know, but, but the other catch 22 of it is most of these young kids, not all, but most are 22, 23, four, five. Yep. Mum and dad still pays for everything because they're not getting paid to race, you know? Yeah. Um, they might work a part-time job, but there's no urgency to need to do anything extra because they still get to go home and, and, they're all sweet. Yeah, <laughs> you know that, what I mean? The hammer hasn't hit the nail yet, for sure. Yeah. No, they, and then when they don't make it, they're bitter on the sport. They're like, oh, fuck racing. I didn't make it. No one paid me to race. You know, I'm, I'm going to get a job and buy a house that I should have done this years ago, and they're all bitter on it. But it's like, again, you just didn't see the opportunities that might have been there. And it's not for everyone, you know. <laughs> um, but my two cents, you know, you got to put yourself out there. Number one, you know, um, put your hands up. You know, I've never had anyone hit me up and say, hey, how are we going on GTV? Can I come commentate a race with you this weekend? I'm injured, you know? Yeah. <laughs> like, uh, I don't know. Just, it, it kind of baffles me sometimes. It's, it's like that. I don't know how you go with it. You've probably got your crew, uh, you know, from Queensland that you're tight with in the pits. You know, I've been a commentator on, on the MX National since 2014. Was that? Jeez, this would be my seventh season, right? Yeah. There, there's still guys in the pit that have I have to go out of my way to to even get a hello from. Yeah, you know? I think it's, um, it's, as a media guy, you got to have a little bit of humility. I mean, I learned that sort of the hard way. I, you know, I just I exactly what I did to you. I just reached out and said, "Hey, man, I'd love to have a chat with you. I just want to hear your story." And yeah, you know, ninety five percent of the people that I've done that to have been great. They're going, "Yeah, man, I can't wait to talk to you." Whether it be a written interview, whether it be a podcast, whatever the case may be. But then you still do have that 5% that are completely shut down. They'll leave you on scene or they'll be like, oh, maybe next week or something like that. It's like, okay, man, I'll, I don't take it personally, but I'm just trying to get your story out there. I'm only trying to help you. And I, yeah, I'm yeah, sure that, you're in the exact same situation. You know? it's, it's like I don't have, you know, I think I've had it one time in my entire, and I still don't consider myself a media guy, if I'm being completely honest, because oh, that has yeah. strange connotations to it for some yeah. reason. But yeah. I, I really don't like the mainstream media. I don't watch the news um yeah it's just not a fan of it right sensationalism no. and, and bullshit and yeah. genders but we can get into that another time but <laughs> um you know at the end of the day it's like you know like i said i'm not this guy that's going to put you on the world stage or i'm not this guru by any means but at the end of the day like hey the guy that's talking about you um you know i'm not trying to blow you out i'm not trying to throw you under the bus when we're doing an IGTV or, or commentating a race, supercross, whatever it is. But, you know, if I'm saying that, why are you getting, why are you going backwards? You just hold shot this race. Why are you drop 10 positions in the first 10 laps and, and what's going on and the team's not going to be happy because I have to say those things because I'm commentating a live race, yeah. But the problem is, is that it, it, it's the truth though. You know, if a rider goes backwards and you can say, if I write about it and say, hey man, just for argument's sake, say, 
Billy Bob went from being a third place guy to an eighth place guy. Something is going on. Yeah, it's it's news. It's I mean, we watch the AFL yeah. and they those guys get critical, you know, criticized or whatever the case may be. We're not trying to destroy well, you as a person. We're just literally commentating on the sport. Well, and that's the thing, right? I guess the, the first one I was going to make was you have, you know, that whole deal. Uh, and then you find out three months later, oh, yeah, man, I, I had this great shoulder or I had no ACL or I had this or I had that. I just didn't want to tell anybody. And I get it. They're trying to protect their ride and the following season or whatever. And sometimes it's not appropriate. But just pull me aside and say, look, Joe, my knee's fucked right now. I'm getting 100%. surgery in three months. Can you just be easy on me? With And I'll be like, dude, no problem. You know, I'm no. not trying to sabotage your career. No, no 100%. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, we're all trying to make money. Like, I get it. No problem. I've got, um, I've got it written down here. How hard is it to be a commentator, man? Because like, once again, I always put my hand up when I say things. And, um, man, I've been brutally hard on Ralph this year in the AMA Supercross. Um, yeah. But then in the same sense, I've learned over the last seven weeks. It's like, fuck, man, I listen back to myself on some of this podcast. And the other week, I, I said there was 19 Supercross rounds. Like, you know what I mean? Like, I can admit the humility, but how hard is it to actually go call a race? Because it's live. You know, most of the stuff you do is live. Like, what sort of um, mindset do you I have to be in to get that done? Can I be completely honest? Yeah. Like a lot of guys are like, oh, you gotta, you got to do your research, got to do your homework. I don't do anything like that. Yeah. Um, you got to be a natural at it. My opinion is how I function. Like whenever I do features at Trackside or I interview a rider on live TV or I do intros, I tried it back in the day. I would write everything down. I would do all this stuff, right? And I'd have my stats, and I'd be like, oh, I've got to say this, I've got to say that. And then they'd go, all right, action. I'd go, I'm thinking about what I'm saying. You know? sure. yeah. um, so I just stopped all that. And I'm like, dude, people are either going to like what I say or they don't. And I like to think I'm pretty educated in the sport, and I know what's going on. Not intuitively, I just talk to everyone, but you can tell what's up. Yeah. So I just call it as I see it, man. I call it as I see it, and I say what really I think is going on. And occasionally you get a bit of backlash, but for the most part, uh, I'd like to think at this point people respect it. Some people don't, you know, I still have, I mean, geez, uh, Greg Moss went on a a hate campaign of my commentating a few years ago on Facebook and was just like paying me out on it after every round and whatever. And, um, you know, you you get those vocal people, but you just got to have thick skin. And geez, I got got thicker skin than most, man. Like I'm not really... (laughs) I'm not really too concerned. Like, essentially don't get me is, wrong. Essentially, that is the game that we're in, though. You're going to say things that people don't agree with or you're going to write things that people don't agree with, and that's cool because everyone's, you know, open to have their opinion. You know what I mean? Like, that's that's the world that we live in, especially now yeah. with social media and everything. You know, everyone has an opinion. And everyone's allowed an opinion, and, and, and unfortunately, the people with the most ill-informed opinions typically have the loudest opinions. Yeah. But yeah. Um, at the same time, like... It just it is what it is, you know what I mean? Like you can't you can't be in a public visual uh, role like being a commentator or whatever, and then get all butt hurt when people say you said the wrong thing. Because if you did, well, you did. Oh yeah. <laughs> and you know, what are you going to fire back at everyone that says, you know, I'm sure Ralph isn't losing any sleep over the Instagram comments when he's one of the mm-hmm. most successful motorsports commentators in 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 America. You know what I mean? It's just, uh, and then then the second thing of always understanding, right? Like when you when you actually do live TV, um, a, a lot of people still don't get that I don't stand up on the commentator's tower and watch the whole race. It's like, dude, I, I say what I see on the screen. So yeah. 
if I don't see your privateer rider that's in 15th, I don't know he crashed in the first turn. I don't know. I just know he's getting lapped right now. <laughs> you know yeah, what I mean? That, that's all I like, can call. Yeah. That's all I know is that he is not up the front and something went wrong. I don't know the story behind the whole thing. And, and you can't and again, decide Joel, what you're seeing either, can you? No. Like it's fed to you. The switcher, uh, Donnell, I mean, he's my producer with the podcast. So I, I give him heaps of shit that he always sucks at showing me what he should on the TV show. <laughs> but ultimately, he's just switching to the calls he gets from the guys on camera on the scaffolds. Like, you know, it's just a massive chain of communication and you're trying to cram a closed course race onto a TV screen. It's not easy. No. Um, and yeah, it's one of those deals where I say what I see and sometimes... I, I get a note passed back to me. So and so's got a flat tire. So and so blew a motor. Well, that's all in the heat of the moment too. You get back to the, the truck after the racing, and it's like, oh no, this actually happened. You're like, oh well, that was wrong. Yeah. <laughs> like, um, but also, like, you got to understand. Like, I've I've had, and I won't name names. Like, I've had riders' parents message me. You know, and this wouldn't happen in AFL. You wouldn't have an AFL team having their their parent message a tabloid to say, well, you just ruined my kids' chances of getting a factory ride in Europe next year, you know? Yeah, yeah. But, like, I've had that. I've had that. It's like, why did you say that about my, my kid? Because now if the team in Europe watches this, they're going to think that of him. You know what I mean? Yeah, and it's like, sure. whoa, like, that's a pretty gnarly connection to make, but that's how desperate people are to make it. You know, they're going to jump on anything. So, um, uh, Are you usually pretty open to say, hey, man, let's set the story straight? Do you know what I mean? Like, uh, yeah. Because yeah, like I, I myself, I wrote an article uh, early early last year when the CDR signed Josh Hill. Hmm. To me personally, for just and in my personal opinion, I hadn't seen anything from Josh Hill for the last three years to say that he was going to be and ride the way that he did last year in the Supercross. Hmm. Like he killed it, man, straight up killed it. But I said it was a dumb decision; someone else should have got that ride. But I can open up and I'll openly say it on podcasts. I've said it on other episodes. Like, oh, dude, I was wrong. You know what I mean? And all of us are wrong at some point. Like it's just a personal opinion, dude. And you, you just got to be. I'm, I don't take myself that seriously. Where yeah. I mean, remember? I don't know if you listened to it. It was one of the early podcasts we did last year, and we were talking about Justin Rodbell coming over. And no, I didn't listen to it. Yeah. Um, and and Duran was like, never heard of him. He's probably not going to do anything. And I was like, it's, it's probably just an attention grab from KSF, whatever. Like just dismissed it hardcore, you know. And yeah. then he comes out and does really well, and. And in the KSF boys, because I know you guys are pretty tight with them. Yeah, we are, um, for sure. Yeah. You know, I, I like those guys a lot, but at the time, I really didn't know them. And then they started posting all this smack talk on Instagram, and they was, they was copying our, uh, dubbing our voiceovers to the, the footage of Rob Bell getting hole shots. And we're like, nah, he's not going to do anything, and he's out front, you know? Yeah, um, yeah. And I'm like, screw it. Like, let's get him on the podcast then, you know? Yeah, um, let's talk about it, 100%. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. Then, and then we got him on, and, and instead of making it worse, it, like, diffused the whole situation. It was like a running joke for the rest of the year that we said he was going to suck, and he did really good. Yeah, um, yeah he actually killed it, 100%. You know, yeah, he yeah. did. And, like, and he was a good, he's a good kid, you know. All the guys at KSF, they're, they're, they're cool, man. And, yeah. um, you know, but, yeah, like you said, if you say something that's wrong, just 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 man up and say, yeah, I, you know, that was my opinion at the time. It was wrong. Yeah, you know, 100%. I don't, yeah, I don't I think you can get shot down for that. You know what I mean? Because everyone's going to, at some point in this game, you're going to say something or do something that upsets one. I think it's just that, once again, it's that hustle mentality or that, that mental solitude that you're going to have to have to be in this position to be able to take the criticism with the praises. 
Exactly. I mean, it's the, at the end of the day, like you said, it's you're in a public position. You're going to say public things. It's not always going to be what people want to hear. And then, second of all, like you know, just you got to have thick skin to a certain extent too. There's a fine line. No, for sure. Uh, man, I know you've got a toddler that's waiting for you, so we'll wrap this up. Yeah, but... he is. His, <laughs> um, his mom is actually trying to get him from running down the hallway right now. He's trying to get to my office. I can hear him. <laughs> no way, man. We'll let you go. But where, obviously, NRG TV, um, if anyone wants to get in touch with you towards um, ID Media, they just, obviously, Instagram's the best handle. Yeah, man. So Instagram, JS underscore Joe Stevens is like my personal one and sort of my main one. I put most things out through there. Um, and you'll see all my other stuff on Instagram from, you know, yeah. I, I don't coach, uh, I don't coach a lot anymore, but I still do coach. Like I've got a few kids that I look after that I, I train pretty regularly and, and they kind of run under my program with all the, the brands I work with, work with them. And, and I'll do, a, I do a little bit of coaching. I do some schools here and there, but for the most part, uh, it's pretty much focusing on the media business and, and that right now. So ID media group is just ID underscore media underscore group on Instagram same Facebook, it's just ID Media Group 2020. Um, and yeah, java.idmediagroup.com.au is the email address. If um, And yeah, I mean, I hate the sales pitch, but pretty much, man, <laughs> like, you know, there's, the long and short of it is, all the contracts I've got working with brands, no one emailed me and said, hey, I heard you do this. It was connections, it was networking. You know, I'm not expecting those things to come from this. It's awareness, but at the same time, it's, if you're a writer that, like I said, like Joe Evans that just reached out and wanted some guidance, I'm happy to give it to you. Yeah. Um, and I'm not this guy that's going to get you to Geico Honda in two years. I don't claim to be this Steve Astafen or big agent well, guy. Like, or something like that, yeah. Yeah, like we're not in America. That's not the market. You know, there's, you know, like um, there's guys that I look after like Jack Simpson. I've been with Jack for years. And, you know, right now Jack's doing this thing in America and I'm helping him, you know, helping him figuring out an athlete visa for over there. So if he wants to go back and compete, he can do it properly. Yeah. You know, it's like, I don't get paid for that. It's just services that we offer. So yeah, um, to cut it short, like, yeah, if anyone does want any advice about um, sponsorship, marking themselves, uh, whether it's, you know, as a racer, there's a couple of BMX guys I do a little bit with, um, you know, the, the, the phone's always on. Just give me a call and and we'll, uh, yeah, we'll try and help, man. That's what it's all about, you know? No, for sure, man. And uh, thanks for your time, man. I really appreciate it. And it was like, it was cool to hear your story, man, because I guess no one knows, you know what I mean, until now. So it was, it was a cool story and I, I really enjoyed the chat. Yeah, no, hey, look, I appreciate you reaching out and um, and hats off to you guys. Cause like I said, when we were messaging back and forth, like there needs to be more people trying to give exposure platforms to guys in the sport. And, uh, I know firsthand how hard it is and how time-consuming it is. Um, oh, dude. Yeah. And yeah, I was, <laughs> I was pumped because, like I said, I'm, I'm always the guy asking the questions. I, I get to say my two cents here or there, and you'll hear a little bit of my story, but I think it's the first time I've ever laid it all down, and, and people – I think people are here and go, okay, that's um, that's unique. It's not a straight line to where you're at. <laughs> I think the thing I got most out of it, man – once again, I don't get down on anybody, but it was it's just, I think it was cool to show that you can fail and you can make these calculated decisions that sometimes don't work out. And at the end, if you keep hustling, you keep, you know, networking and putting yourself out there, good things can happen from it. I think that's, you know what I mean? It's, a, it's sort of 
I guess, inspiring and sort of a way to any business people. You do, it doesn't just have to be motor related. It can be business, family, the whole no, thing. Is that if you apply yourself 100%, you will, you know, achieve the goals that you want. I think the, the thing I would like to finish on is this is, you know, I'm not a Gary Vee or a Grant Cardone or whatever, right? But, um, <laughs> Sell baseball cards, man. Yeah, man. No, but straight up, like your network is your net worth. Like every time I've ever done anything that's led to business opportunities or to where I'm at now, which I'm not balling out in Melbourne with a freaking BMW and whatever, but like I've been successful in business to the industry and, and branching out, you know, several times. And number one is, is you've got to surround yourself. Like if you're a writer that you want to make it, you want to, you want to stand out from the crowd, but all your mates go to trade school and they work nine to fives, well, they're not going to help you. No, <laughs> you know what yeah, I mean? Yeah. They have no concept of what you're trying to achieve. You need to surround yourself with the right people. Um, and all, you know, I would literally say like 90% of my friendship or business group, they all run their own businesses. They all are, and we do a lot of business together. You know, that's some of the things we have in common is that some of the things we went way back and we were friends, you know, like the guy I worked for at the marketing agency for the last the end of last year, you know, um, we were friends like 10 years before we did that business together. You know what I mean? So I think people sometimes struggle with that concept of you can't do friends and business. You can, you just got to do it the right way, you know? Yeah, for um, sure. so surround yourself with the right people. And then, um, you know, I think that's probably the, the biggest lesson I, I would give to the kids is that you only get one shot at, at surrounding yourself with the right people. You can do it with the wrong people and really mess things up too. <laughs> you know? Yeah. yeah. Um, probably got a little sidetrack there, but yeah, that's, um, you know, that and just, you know, put yourself in a position where you can't fail because even if you fail, you're going to have so many opportunities open up from swinging for the fences. And that's what's happened to me quite a few times. Like I've had some pretty you know, like a bright and shiny business, I wouldn't say failures, but lessons, yeah, you know? Yeah. Um, and, and yeah, like every time a business has maybe wound up not working out or I've moved on from it, well, the noise I made doing it, the connections I made doing it, they've led straight into the next venture I've done. So you just got to be cut out that way to, to see the benefits and not the downsides. But, you know, if you want to own a house at 24 and have the, the Australian dream, you're probably going to struggle. You know, you got to be realistic about it that if you're going to hustle, you're going to have to hustle for a long time. But I'm 32 now and I've come out the other side of it, but it's, it's took that long. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's, it's, yeah. It's not an overnight success. And I think no, that's the big thing too, is people look at, I mean, I mean, honestly, I've even seen it for me. Like we started to oh, 10, 11 months ago, just as a shit, shit show idea while I was injured on the couch. And I think I got DM the other day. It's like, Oh, you guys are killing it. Blah, 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 blah. I'm like, dude, you haven't seen, the grind and the effort and the editing and the trying to figure out how all this shit works. You know, it's not just an overnight success. It's, and, nah, you know, and we're only, only we're only at the beginning. You know what I mean? We're not even anywhere near my goals of where post would be. And then you look at you, it's been, oh, dude, it's been like, you know, you're 32, so I'm not real good at math. But it's been a 12 year grind just to get comfortable. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. It, it, it's, yeah. And even then it's, you know, I mean, then you look at what's going on now. The economy is loaded up completely. A lot of my contracts have said, hey, we need to chill out on the marketing for a few months. Um, uh, scary times. Yeah, <laughs> you sure. know what I mean? But it's like, well, you know, what do you, again, you have the chance to reset. It's not a failure. You know, we'll come out the other side of it. It's just, you know, luckily I have some brands that are going to keep going because they're e based and this is a great time for them. Um, 
but yeah, like you said, it ain't overnight success. They just see the shiny thing. And, and that, again, what, last piece of advice, Instagram isn't real, kids. So <laughs> <laughs> all that stuff you see, it's, 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 it's social media. Media, by definition, is a portrayal of something from that person's perspective. They're trying to sell you something. You know what I mean? So there's a lot of genuine people on Instagram. There's a lot of bullshit, too. So people see that. They don't see, you know, they don't see the hard yards that go behind it. So... Yeah. Um, don't but get hey, sucked into that rabbit hole because it it'll yeah know, exactly it because you're just so going to be dramas. yeah you just what you said before your goals you want to be in a certain spot well that's never going to stop so when you get to that spot you're going to want to go somewhere else and as long as you keep that mentality you'll keep growing you'll keep moving forward because that's what it's all about but um anyway man I want to thank you yeah thanks for reaching out to me I really enjoyed it and um all right. yeah you guys keep doing good things because no uh, we need it. So, good job. I appreciate it. We'll hopefully see you in June at the uh, Nationals. Yeah, man. Look, I th- fingers crossed. Uh, uh, Conondale. Yeah. Con- Conondale's yeah, will be the first round. Is that the- uh, that's not official. I think okay. that's the yeah. goal. Um, but That's a good round to have it as first round too. Yeah, it'd be pretty sick. Yeah. But I know that still. It just depends on where the government goes with the Yeah, but... Uh, yeah. Sorry, did you just drop in the last bit there? Yeah. yeah, we had a lightning strike. We just had a power cut, so I should probably get off before it cuts out. <laughs> before you die, man? Yeah, no dramas. <laughs> yeah, maybe that too. <laughs> All right, dude, appreciate your time, and uh, once again, thank you. Yeah, legend, mate. All right, talk to you soon. See you, mate. Bye.